Everyone, this is going to be maybe the best four hours of our whole trip. Four hours? about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre abnormal or off kilter for contemporary audiences occasionally these projects gel most times they crash hard into their own obscurity join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp i'm zach and i admit it is difficult to even think encased in this rotting piece of meat the stink of it filling every breath a suffocating cloud you can't escape disgusting how pathetically fragile it is nothing this week is meant to survive oh zach we're here the final matrix movie until two days from now <laughs> yes this the is coming out distant future of two days from e- now. exactly this is the last matrix movie we'll be discussing our matrix material we will be discussing until our eventual episode on the matrix resurrections occurs it's been good so far, Zach. We've talked a lot about the, the Wachowskis, the Matrix movies. I think this is great, but get ready for this one. It's going to be a doozy. I think Zach knows how much stuff I have ready to talk about in this episode. Our audience might not be fully prepared for it, though. We got segments from the Animatrix. We got the actual third movie, The Matrix Revolutions. I watched about an hour and 15 minutes of cutscenes from the video game The Path of Neo, and then I spent a long time diving into the mythology and lore of The Matrix. Matrix Online, and we're going to get to all of this. But I figured we'd start, Zach, with something that we um, we have to correct ourselves on, I should say, from our first episode. Uh, when Zach and I sat down to record something that was not a Matrix movie, we came to the realization that in the first Matrix episode, the first Matrix discussion of ours, we didn't talk about Ghost Cat or Deja Vu Cat. We we were pretty upset with ourselves, right, Zach, that we didn't do that in that first episode. <laughs> oh God, we we missed a perfect opportunity to insert some Ghost Cat. Yes, so so we had to bring that up here. We we need to talk about you know Ghost Cat, and the good thing is that Ghost Cat slash Deja Vu Cat shows up at the end of this third movie, so we'll be able to get it in. We didn't uh, we didn't miss it, you know, miss the boat completely. And I can only hope that you know Ghost Cat slash Deja Vu Cat will be a major character. In the fourth movie. You think that cat's still alive? There's no way it can be, right? <laughs> is it a simulation? That's the real question. Mm, or, Zach, to set up where we're going to go in this episode, is, a, is it a simulacrum? <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, I, I guess um, the other thing I wanted to mention at the start of this, which you've thrown a wrench now into, Zach, based on our pre-recording discussion, I was going to come out definitively and say, let's just call this the Wachowski series, because next week we're going to be, you know, talking about Jupiter Ascending, but now that might not be the fucking case anymore. If next week really is the Matrix 4, then this is just the Matrix series. So I guess what I'm saying is we won't know what this is until we record the last episode for it, you know what I mean? <laughs> More or less. Yeah, so we're, we're not doing the greatest with our series name at the end of, uh, series names at the end of 2021, but, you know, we're still thinking about it, for sure. So, now, preamble, Zach. You cannot veto this. 
Uh, I am going to talk about so much fucking stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I am really happy that the, the, the small amounts of editing that I've done on the previous two episodes so far of this series, I'm very happy that we are covering pretty much the entirety of the lore of The Matrix, as we understand it, and the entirety of what we think the movies are about. And I want this series to be complete in that sense. So, of course, we're going to talk about The Matrix Revolutions, but like I have said earlier in this discussion and this month, I want to dive into all of this Matrix stuff. What What is actually in the lore? You know, I looked into, like I said, the video games, the comic books, that type of stuff. I really want this to be like a complete, definitive discussion on The Matrix. And this episode is where we're going to get the most discussion from me, because like I said, there's a lot of ancillary material surrounding this third movie and where the franchise is going to go. And like I said, Zach, you can't veto this. This is going to be one of those episodes where we have to dive into everything. Rob, you don't have to worry about me vetoing it. You have to worry about the audience vetoing it when they <laughs> turn off from it. Well, I hope – well, if, if you don't want to know everything there is to know about the Matrix franchise, then this series or this month is not for you, that type of thing. And, and by looking at the box office numbers for this film, that is most of you. <laughs> yes, yes. So – I, I guess, really, I'm setting up this preamble because, Zach, you know, I don't want you to just feel like, oh, I didn't watch any of this this Animatrix stuff or didn't, I, I didn't sit through the hours of gameplay footage, you know, for these video games. But please, Zach, I want you and I want our audience to understand where I'm coming from. So at any point, I'm going on these long diatribes explaining the Matrix what's, stories. What's, what's the safe word, Rob? What's the safe word? There is no safe words. <laughs> what I'm saying is feel free to jump in with any questions if nothing if something doesn't make any sense. I will explain it to you, that type of thing. <laughs> so your safe word for a quick reprieve is going like, uh, Rob, I have a question, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Are you ready to get into it, Zach? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, we have to start. With the finishing up of the Animatrix. So we've discussed a lot of the Animatrix segments. Uh, there's, there's more that we have to discuss. If you go online and um, you look up, you Google something like, how should I watch The Matrix, you know? They'll say, like, oh, of course, you know, there's movies one, two, and three. But, like, here's where the video game takes place. Here's where these segments take place. And that's what I've been following in this series. You know, the Animatrix segments I discussed in the previous two episodes, I, I tried to keep chronological. The remainder of the Animatrix segments that I'm going to talk about, they don't really have a place. It's, it's not that you can't determine when the chronology is. They're more uninterested in that. So, so these Animatrix segments I want to talk about, um, they're pretty much just like tales to astonish from the Matrix, that type of thing. Uh, they're basically just playing with the idea of like what could happen in the Matrix. So the first one that we have to talk about is called Program. And this is probably my least favorite segment of the Animatrix. It begins as like a medieval sword fight on horseback. It's clearly in the Matrix or a simulation of the Matrix, like a training simulation. Uh, there's sparring between these two characters that's just pointless and action-based. It's not really interesting. When one of them starts talking, it's a male voice. He's in like full knight armor type of thing. Um, it's, it's Phil Lamar doing the voice, which is great. But the delivery and the editing of the voice acting and I think the, the art as a whole is put together really poorly. But in terms of story, you know, Phil Lamar, who's playing a character called Duo, he says that he wants to go back into the Matrix before Zion gets wiped out, giving a sense that it's somewhere between the second and third movie. Um, and he doesn't want to be killed in the war. He's basically taking the cipher approach. The main character, the the female, um, Sis, she goes by, she's 
fights duo like i said that meaningless sparring duo says to her like i want to go back into the matrix i don't i want to be on the side of the machines not of the humans that type of thing um sis defeats duo and as she's like in the process of defeating duo starts screaming into the sky that she needs an operator like you know how in all the matrix movies when you know they they call their their operator you know in, in the um in the real world and they're they're like, you know, oh, I need a landline, I need a hard line out, that type of thing. But they're always on a phone of some sort. Here, Sis is just screaming into the sky. She's like, operator, operator. It is basically identical to Tom Cruise screaming tech support in Vanilla Sky. Here's my first question. It, do you think this works in, in, like, context of The Matrix? Do you think, like, Trinity, while in The Matrix, could scream, like, Link, I need a way out! Like, would that work? Or don't they need, like, an actual connection to the operator? You know what I'm saying? I I think it, they could. I remember, I vaguely remember this this segment. I, I guess, like, the because the, operate, the operator is looking at the Matrix feed, so yes. that would come across as, like, the digital rain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's it's plausible, but I don't feel like I'm the correct like judge. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I don't think there are any aren't any con- like concrete rules in this. Uh, I think it's whatever uh, whims the plot has it going. Sure, the the way I rationalized it because I really don't like the idea that you know like Morpheus or Trinity could go like you know Link, I need a way out, and Link would magically talk to them somehow. I I rationalized this short of the Animatrix in this way a little more because they are in the training simulation. So they're technically not in the Matrix. They're jacked into whatever, you know, on whatever ship they're on, the simulation of the Matrix. So maybe that's something smaller where it'd be like, you know, I need an operator, that type of thing, and it it would work better or anything like that but with that that being said that was an interesting question that's the only interesting thing about this segment about program like i said you know it's a bunch of fighting that's meaningless and then really the the big kind of punch to the audience is at the very end is that when sis defeats duo and sis leaves the matrix you know it she she jacks out and she's on whatever ship you know there they don't mention what ship's name it is i think there's only like 12 ships from zion or something like that um but it's revealed that this was just a test like, this was just testing to see if Sis would be able to fight with the humans if, or if she would be tempted to go with the person who wants to side with the machines. And it's literally like, the, the thing is literally like, oh, that was all a dream, and it doesn't matter because, you know, we never hear from these characters again. It really kind of sucked. This was a bad element of the Animatrix, I have to say. <laughs> you know what's a good segment of the Animatrix, though? The next one I want to talk about, my favorite segment from the Animatrix, World Record. I know I've talked about this on the podcast before we've even done this Matrix series, but this is the one that I've said very briefly. It's basically a Twilight Zone episode, and what if the fastest person on the planet had to be shut down by the Matrix because they basically were a glitch in the Matrix? They were an anomaly. Not as anomalous as The One or Agent Smith or anything like that, but literally so anomalous that he's, he's going faster than any other person. And so that's what this is about. This runner, he sets the world record for some type of race, like the 100-meter dash. I don't remember what it is, but he sets this record. And while he is preparing for another race where he wants to beat that previous record, we start to get the sense that, you know, the Matrix is on to him, that the Matrix is going to try and shut him down in some way. And there's this really cool scene when, as he's actually doing this race at the end, that all the other racers who are behind him turn into agents, all the agents try and capture him, and he is captured. The agents actually, like, dogpile on him, and 
while this is happening in the Matrix, we get a cut to the real world where this runner is in his pod and one of the they're not sentinels i think they might be like you know the uh, the the thing that we see grab neo when he comes out of his pod in the first movie and flush him down the pod one of those pops up and it starts to torture the runner like it it physically like shocks the runner anom- the runner's anomaly out of him and when this kind of you know gets reset in the matrix we see a little deja vu thing we go back into the matrix the runner is still running it's like they've reset the him being dogpiled by agents and now he is running at as at full force but his muscles are like exploding as he's running like you see like his muscles and his legs snap and stuff like that and he wins the race he sets the world record beating his own by a good margin, like 0.7 seconds or something. And he trips, he goes flying into the pavement, and it turns out that at the end of this, he like his muscles are irreparably damaged. The runner tries to walk again at the end, but is like pushed down by an agent. And literally, the Matrix is like, we need to suppress this anomaly. Like, this guy was just too fast. It is fucking horrifying. Like, literally, the whole story sets up that this athlete just wanted to be the best in the world at something. It's a very human emotion, you know? We, we think it's like, I have a goal, I want to achieve it. And the Matrix hammers him down, not only by stopping him in the Matrix, but by torturing him in the real world to influence how he interacts with the Matrix, and basically making him a vegetable. It is so scary, it is so interesting to think about. World Record's a great segment. I would totally recommend everybody check that out. It's a great, just like, tale from The Matrix. Now, like I said, Zach, I know I've mentioned this one before. Is this one you remember from the Animatrix at all? Uh, I'm not entirely... Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, okay. It's, it's, it's Like I said, it's very much like Twilight Zone, just here's a tale. What would happen in The Matrix, that type of thing? Mm-hmm. And I wish we had more of those, to be honest. Um... I wish we had more just like what can we play around with the Matrix to make it a, a more fully fleshed out story. Um, World Record is great, though. It's scary. It's everything I want, you know, um, but it is that standalone tale. One of the tales from the Animatrix that is not as standalone is um, what the Internet seems to consistently think is the best segment. It's called Matriculated. So this is I think this is also the longest segment uh, might be second longest to the second renaissance when which is the story of the matrix and the machines and all that stuff so matriculated starts with a woman on the surface of earth something we haven't seen in the movies you know we're always basically on the uh, the underground you know the 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 machine lines the program lines the uh, the city of Zion that type of stuff but this one starts on the surface of earth and when two machines come and start chasing this woman, she, like, you know, chases them or leads them on a chase or seems to be running from them. But it turns out that she was leading them into a trap. And this segment follows a group of humans, maybe, like, eight of them or something, and they basically live on the surface of the Earth trying to capture machines so they can hopefully convert them into wanting peace between humans and machines. So the idea is that these humans capture these sentinels or runners or some other there's another type of machine that they um they they throw in here they capture them they basically jack the machines into their own version of the matrix like it is a very very human depiction of the matrix you know how in the matrix every time we go into it we get the the digital rain everything's rectangular everything you know has corners it's very machine like and sharp when they go into this this different matrix that the humans have created it's all orange like the code of the real world from matrix revolutions everything's smoothed out they really have created this new type of 
simulation for the human condition. So they jack the machines in with them into this thing, and they basically perform inception on the machines. So they basically put the machines into this kind of hallucination that removes their machine-like exoskeletons, make them think they are more humanoid, and then puts them in a situation where they are belittled and saved by a human. So it really is the idea of Inception. Like, let's put them into this notion or this situation where they're going to be, like, hurt and they need help from a human to hopefully make them see the, the goodness in humans, that they shouldn't just be killed. This entire segment of Matriculated, th this whole hallucination that a sentinel has, it's the weirdest thing. It is so off-the-wall abstract. There's major Twin Peaks, like, Black Lodge or Red Room vibes. Like, literally, you know how in Twin Peaks The Return, like, when people get sent back to the Red Room, their head, like, busts open and, like, a golden ball comes out? Like, that happens at a certain moment in this segment of the Animatrix. It is so similar to, like, David Lynch stuff. It's awesome. Um, but this conversion gets interrupted when other machines start to attack the headquarters of this human base. So the conversion kind of gets cut off right as it's about to work. That's going to come up a little later. But then when the machines attack these humans, the machines like activate uh, – sorry, the humans activate other machines they've already converted. So we get some like machine-on-machine -machine action. But it's basically like a Pyrrhic victory where all of the bad machines get killed, but in the process they kill all of the humans, and there's only one machine left, and it's the one that they were trying to convert for the, the previous time of the segment. Right before the woman that we saw at the start, right before she dies, the machine that we've been following jacks the machine and the woman back into this human matrix, and the machine is like... It basically, like, tries to say I love you to the human. Like, the conversion has worked as the reveal, and the machine goes back into this, this human matrix and says to this woman, like, I love you now. Like, like, we can live together in harmony. And the woman rejects him before she dies. Like, the last moments of this woman in the human matrix is, like, horrifyingly going, like, no, 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 and, and running away from this machine and then dying in the real world. And it ends with this machine just, like, Daring off into the distance. It is so fucking cool, Zach. I love the idea that there's a group of humans trying to convert machines to their side, and one is so successful that it wants to love a human woman, and the human woman rejects him right before death. <laughs> I don't know. I find that, like, just haunting, if that makes some sense. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I get it. Um, I remember, again, like I said, a lot of this is coming back. Because I watched the Animatrix, but we're talking, like, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember this. Yeah, I, I, I think the idea is, from what I remember, the idea is better than the execution of it. I, I would agree. I would agree. And I, I, that might be the, the sense of most of these Animatrix segments. Um, one thing about Matriculated that stood out to me like a sore thumb is that one of the scientist humans who has, like, created this conversion technology, is animated to look exactly like Professor Membrane from Invader Zim. So Dib's dad, do you remember Professor Membrane, the scientist with the white coat, that, like, his, like, collar covered half of his face type of thing? Vaguely. It, it looks exactly like, like Professor Membrane from Invader Zim. It's kind of wild. <laughs> so, now... If there's no other questions about uh, Matriculated, Zach, <laughs> we also have the Animatrix segment, the last one that we have to discuss. It's called Beyond. Now, this is the one that's interesting. 
if if you Google, like I said earlier, you know how what's the chronology of the Matrix movies or the Matrix franchise, you know, you will find an article. The first article that'll come up um, is basically I think it's from like Esquire or something like that. Uh, probably not Esquire, but um, it it basically says, you know, it's like you know, okay, you watch the. The, the second renaissance and maybe like detective story from the Animatrix. Then you watch the first movie. Then here's some more Animatrix segments. Here's the video game. Then you watch the Matrix Revolutions. And then they list all of these other ones that I've been talking after Matrix Revolutions, which is why I kind of want to do it before. Because like I said, there's no reason to think that these happen after the events of the trilogy. And they say that in this article. They, uh, for all of these descriptions for program, world record, and matriculated, they say, like, well, we can't really pin down when this takes place, but, you know, whatever. This article states that Beyond take, takes place after the trilogy, um, which I do not believe in the fucking slightest. It's another irrelevant time or, or temporally irrelevant segment of the Animatrix. I did some digging. It turns out that the one and only source... For this article telling you how to uh, to watch the Matrix chronology, the only source they have is from a Reddit post. And it basically is so fucking copy and pasted that I think the person who made the Reddit post, which is dated earlier than the article, is the author of the article. But of course, I can't know that for sure. Username versus real name, that type of thing. But for some reason, they think Beyond takes place after the trilogy, which I am definitively saying right here, there is no reason to think that. It could. I mean... When we have another iteration of the Matrix at the end of the trilogy, of any of these could fucking take place after the third movie, but program matriculated world record. But I don't think there's any reason to believe it does, and they seem very definitive about it. Anyway, Beyond is about this girl. Uh, she's talking to her friend on the phone. She's trying to feed her cat. Cat's not there. She has no idea where the cat is, so she goes looking for it. Local kid tells the girls, uh, tell local kids, sorry, tell the girl that the cat went to the old haunted house. Uh, as they decide to head over there, you know, all the, the local kids and the girl, two things happen. Uh, one, we get this shot of, like, a computer monitor that says that there's an error around the old haunted house, like a glitch in the Matrix type of thing is the implication. The other thing that happens as they're going to the haunted house is one of the local kids actually has the line to our main girl, Hey girl, nice knees. And I thought that was very strange, because I've, I've never heard that. I've just complimenting someone on their knees before. You know you're not supposed to go in there. But we don't really care about that. You want to go? Are we going? It's probably raining there again. <laughs> Let's go. Ow. Whoa. Nice moves, man. Come on. But of course, they get to the haunted house, and it is a glitch in the Matrix. Like, there's, there's uh, uh, cans or trash on the ground that are floating above it. There's, like, this dog that's melting into code. Um, it's raining only in, like, one small spot. There's glitches in the fabric of the Matrix, like actual deja vu and things resetting. The girl finds her cat, but when she finds her cat, she also finds that the local kids have been playing in the haunted house by taking advantage of, like, the weird physics and the glitch in the Matrix. So, like, you know, three kids will be hanging around to have a glass bottle. One of them will, like, throw it in the center of them, and it'll shatter, but then it'll pause, and it'll reform, and it'll, like, finish the bounce. So they're basically, like, playing catch, but with a bottle that is breaking and reforming when it hits the ground. It's a, it's a really cool image. 
damage. Um, they're doing things like jumping off of the, of the ceiling and trying to stop as close to the ground as possible um, because they can just control you know, gravity in that type of way. There's so, there's so much cool like shots of just uh, the imagery of this. Um, the girl starts playing with the kids, and while they are hanging around, um, this big truck and machinery comes in, people in gas masks, agents show up. Uh, the girl goes to grab her cat and run, but is captured by the people who really capture all the kids in there, take them away, and they reconfigure this location of the Matrix. Um, and so the segment ends when the kids and the girl go back to the old haunted house, which has now been leveled. So now it's just like a parking lot or something. And they try and do the crazy stuff with the physics, but they can't anymore because the glitch has been fixed. There's also a scene that I found really neat where the girl finds a door in that, in this haunted house that leads to a giant black abyss. And as she stares into it, like kind of wondering whether or not to go into it, it seems she's hearing echoes of previous dialogue from this segment like the audio mixing is really weird and it's really interesting and it's kind of like well is this glitch in the matrix like a loop in the matrix or something like if she actually went through that door into the black abyss would she just have repeated the segment or something like that or part of the segment i don't know it was a really neat idea but like i said no reason to think it happens after the main trilogy and with that zach we've finished the animatrix I know this, these don't tie into the movies as much. These are really just, like I said, tales from the Matrix, you know, that type of thing. Um, so there's not really too much to say, but any, any questions on any of that stuff? I thought it was just good fun to, to think about the Matrix in some of these weird ways. Uh, it's certainly provocative. That's probably the easiest way to describe it. <laughs> well, then, I guess uh, if there's nothing else about the Animatrix, then Zach, next is the actual movie we're discussing today, The Matrix Revolutions. <laughs> Yay! Okay, so, like, like we've been saying these last two episodes, I think most of our context is out of the way already. This is the movie, the third of the trilogy, Revolutions, is the one that I've seen the least. I think, I, not that I've ever disliked it, I think I would always gravitate to Reloaded more, which I also think played on HBO more frequently, or at least from my memory. Um, but, Zach, I really want to know what you think. This is the one you've been saying for a while, and in this series, that you've always liked the third Matrix movie the best. Upon rewatching, does that still stand? Or, or maybe that in conjunction with, well, what was it like to rewatch this third movie and now the whole trilogy again? It does. So I remember, obviously, like I said, for the last two weeks, uh, came out two, enjoying it, um, got the DVD in October, so about like four to six weeks before this came out in theaters. I I remember my main memory of this movie in theaters was walking out of it and it was like on, I wanted to come the car ride home and like my mother didn't like it I didn't like it okay and I remember lying to her when she asked me if I liked it because I know if I said I didn't like it she wouldn't buy it for me eventually on <laughs> DVD yeah um, I remember getting it that I think it came out around Easter time in 2004 so I got it for Easter and then after that like I, I really didn't pay it that much more mind. Like I know, like I mentioned earlier, like I revisited the matrix in 2007 and then it was around 2010 where like, I really got into revolutions to the point where like I have the, uh, Oh God, back when we still had like V like video rental stores. I have like the matrix revolution poster. Like it was basically the DVD art where it's like the four quadrants with the title. I think it's Trinity and Morpheus, um, Neo, 
uh, oh God, Smith, and then you have uh, Mufuni on the APC. Mm-hmm. And I got that, and I enjoy. I guess I, that's when I really started to get into Resurrection. Oh, Resurrection, Revolutions, Jesus. <laughs> um, and then in 2017, like I rewatched it again, and I'm like, yeah, this is neat. And it's kind of been. Oh God! Like the butt of like many jokes. If you listen to the, the Star Wars podcast, where it's like, oh, Zach's favorite film is Revolutions. Um, I kind of forgot like the pacing of this movie in the last, I'd say, four years. Okay. Because oh God! Like really, you don't get any action until like the hour mark. Like it's not until halfway through that you get like the attack on Zion. Yep. Yep. And that's been pretty much building since the very, very beginning of Reloaded. So talk about like three, three and a half hours of buildup. Um, <laughs> well, we do get the uh, the club hell uh, fight scene with the oh, fallen yeah. angels. Yeah, yeah, but we've seen that before. Like, that's the thing. Like, I get why people were disillusioned with the Matrix after watching this because it does feel. Oh god, you have to be really invested in these movies to appreciate the third one, and I think that's the problem. I think at a superficial level, the third one is just like. The second one is underwhelming. The third one's just nonsense. If you're not engaged with with what they're getting, at. yes, yeah, that, I was about to say, like, it really is. I think these movies, Reloaded and now Revolutions, I think these movies are basically impenetrable if you are not doing the research <laughs> with them as well. You know? <laughs> oh, definitely, hundred percent. Because there's even a moment, like, there was stuff that I had to remind myself of, where you know, um, when. When they go to – when the gang, I guess, Trinity, Morpheus, and Seraph, when they go to Club Hell to um, encounter the Merovingian, like Seraph walks up first and one of the guards says, holy shit, it's wingless. And it's like – I was like, oh god, what wh- what did that mean? And it's like, oh yes, Seraph is like an agent from the first Paradise Matrix that worked with Merovingian after he got exiled but left the Merovingian to take care of the new Oracle because the – Merovingian was somewhat of the oracle from the Hell Matrix and things like that. I'm just like, oh god, this is so cool. But nobody's gonna get what's going on if they don't know about that stuff. <laughs> oh no, it's it's layered and dense. Yeah, and I think, and that's again, that's what turned people off. Like the Wachowskis just figured everybody was on, is that was as a born on like with this film and this. Oh god, just film, but the entire series as they were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I talk about we... taking the we're taking the wrong lessons from why people like Exactly. The first yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think the um like we talked about in the first movie, everybody, you know, came out going, Wow, that was so cool. I love the way that movie looked, and the Wachowskis were like, Ah, so you got the dense lore we created? Let's go harder with that. <laughs> and boy, uh, did that oh. fall apart. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because this movie this movie starts with Neo in limbo. I just love that fact, man. That well, it's like, like, what's going to happen? Neo just used real world powers. Whoa, man, everything's coming together. Second movie ends with the Bane reveal. Everybody goes, what the fuck was that, you know? But okay, there's another movie coming. And then the movie starts with, you know, how Neo going, how can you feel love? It's It's a human emotion. No, it's a word. We just know what that word makes us feel type of thing. And it's like... Wow, and nobody <laughs> saw this coming. <laughs> oh, I, I no, I, I, as I, the movie began, I kept thinking like, oh man, they they cut the second film like where to like like end it so incorrectly. Like, so what the second film should have ended with you have like the pan from Neo to Bane, and then you cut to like Neo in the train station, and that's it. Like you see him wake up in the train station, and then it's like smash cut to to be concluded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, 
not that that would have cleared up, I think, for most audiences why Neo is in Limbo, or, or Mobile Avenue, as it's called. Uh, did you get that Mobile <laughs> is an anagram of Limbo? Because I didn't, I didn't get that, Zach, until I read 24 IMDb trivia facts. Some in the spoiler section, some not in the spoiler section. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think you're totally right. Set it up as like, Neo just did Matrix powers in the real world. The whole Bane thing happens. People go, who the fuck is that character? And then it cuts to Neo waking up in somewhere completely new. That's a much better cliffhanger than the Bane thing. I'm with you. Yeah. And, and that's, like I said, it just it's it's cut weirdly. Even how this movie starts is just very, like, jarring how it's edited. Um, because, like, the whole point of having a climax at the end of your second film is for the third film to kind of pick up, like, where you left off. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you, bring up, you, bring, uh, you pick up exactly where, like, okay, like, wham, bam, slam – but you do need that kind of like intrigue to kind of just pace it out. Like again, famous example of a character disappearing at the end of a second film only to be rescued at the beginning of a third empire strikes back into return of the Jedi. You have that like 30 minutes of Jabba's palace mm-hmm. and you can tell that's kind of what they were going for here. Um, the, the Merovingian being of like a kind of like a twist on the idea of like a gangster that has a protagonist captured against their will. Yes. Um, but that's the thing, though. Like, you have this entire thing with, like, oh, Seraph and then, like, Trinity and Morpheus with the Oracle. The Oracle doesn't look like the Oracle. Yeah, and, we talked and, about and, that a little bit last week from the Enter the Matrix stuff. Yeah, why why she doesn't look that – like, why she doesn't look like Gloria Foster anymore. <laughs> sure, but, like, it's brought up and you have that and you have the whole thing about them going to the Merovingian. and you have the action sequence, like, at the gun check lobby – which is very, very reminiscent of that of the sequence from the first film. Yep, the lobby you've like, seen, yeah. Another lobby gun sequence. And, you know, it's cool to watch, like, the bad guy henchman, like, like be, like, jump up on the ceiling and fight upside down. That's that's a neat, like, twist on it. It, it still feels like Ben there done that. Sure. With, with, technically, yes. I think, you know, from exactly what you said, it gave me the same feelings of the lobby scene from the first one. It is kind of really cool, though, you know, I, I think when you watch it, you go, wow, okay, these henchmen can fly basically like there's this great comical shot of one of them like flying horizontally from like a post to a post and just getting shot by trinity or something because he just flies right in front of her or something like that it's it's pretty funny but the wachowskis are seeing it oh we're not fighting the swat people anymore now we're fighting the Merovingians henchmen who are from the early iterations of the Matrix. And why can they fly? Why can they go up on the ceiling? Because they're fallen angels, you know? that They're, they're supposed to be angels from the first Paradise Matrix, like, exiled and recontextualized by the Merovingian for his own purposes. And the Wachowskis are probably like, yeah, this is different, this is crazy, everybody's gonna get it. But like I said before, the only hint of this is one of the guards says to Seraph, oh shit, it's wingless. And it's just like, should I care about that as an audience yeah. member? <laughs> like, I honestly don't know what they thought, like, people watching this in 2003, were how, how they were going to react to this. Not at all. Not at all. So, well, I, at the beginning of this movie, I'm glad you mentioned it, the Jabba's Palace thing. It, it's clearly an analog of the Jabba's Palace, you know, let's go save Han Solo, but now we got to save Neo and, and that type of thing. Can you, do you have an explanation? Not can you, I should say, because it's very difficult to, to give this. But do you have an explanation as to why Neo is in the train station at the start of the third movie? Do you think that's a, a, ex- efficiently explained by either the end of the second or the beginning of the third movie? That might be the better way to say it. Oh, God. Uh, short answer, no. Long answer, <laughs> no, but. <laughs> 
no, not at all. Like, it, I, again, you have to be steeped in this. Um, like, uh, they do kind of explain it under the lens of, oh, it's it's the world between worlds. It's yes. it's the bridge. Um, like, it's explained, but solely is like a very mundane exposition dump. Oh yeah, mundane and uh, and difficult. I guess you would say, you know, because I guess this was. I wanted to bring this up because, like I said at the start of this, like Revolutions is the one I've seen the least. And even though it's a part of the Matrix trilogy, and I've also seen it a bunch of times, I remember when I sat down to watch it, and I was getting through this first thirty minutes, really kind of the first twenty minutes in the train station and stuff. I was kind of thinking to myself, oh yeah. I've never really fully understood why, you know, Neo has been captured by the Merovingian. Because, of course, Trinity, Seraph, and Morpheus have to go to the Merovingian to get Neo released. Because he's in the train station, controlled by the train man who works for the Merovingian. So, I actually took the time, you know, watching this movie and for this research, and I was like, it can't be that the Merovingian captured him. There's no way, because at the end of the second movie, he's out of the Matrix, he uses new Matrix powers in the real world, and then he just basically falls unconscious. And then at the start of the third movie, he's captured by the Merovingian. At least that's how I always thought about it. But I'm like, well, what? Like, there's no explanation of that. There's no video game between Reloaded and Revolutions to explain how he got captured by the Merovingian. There's no comic books that explain it. And I think the, the thing to take away from it is that Neo does not get captured by the Merovingian. It's a subtle distinction, but he's not captured by the Merovingian. He is sent to a place that the Merovingian happens to control. Does that make sense, Zach? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's, yes. That's, yes. that's how it eventually makes sense when you parse through it exactly. for, like, three hours. Exactly. That's and how it eventually it makes sense. So this is, this is how I was able to parse through it with my research, is that he is sent to Limbo. Because at the end of the previous movie, when he, re- he refuses his, his programming to the architect, he refuses that part of the anomaly in him that is supposed to go and reinstall the Prime program to restart the Matrix. When Neo refuses to do that, there's a sense that the Matrix then sees him as rogue and sends him to limbo, just as it would do with all exiled programs. But it's not exactly that the Matrix immediately deems him as rogue, but I think there's also something that when Neo denies to reinstall the Prime program to the Architect at the end of the previous movie, he's still connected to the Source. The whole path of the One is that when he goes through the door at the end of Reloaded and meets the Architect, he thinks he's getting to the Source, but he's basically in the waiting room for the Source. And the, the architect and the matrix itself expects him to repeat his programming, so he is connected to the source when he meets the architect. But by defying his program, defying the choice he was supposed to make, when he jacks out of the matrix after saving Trinity, this is going to sound crazy, but I think that the one, Neo, is basically still connected to the source by Wi-Fi, technically. And that's why he's able to use his matrix powers in the real world, but that's Another reason that the Matrix then deems him as rogue and sends him to Limbo, which just happens to be controlled by the Merovingian. The movie, when I just watch it, and I, like I said, I've been thinking about it for years, I'm always like, how did the Merovingian capture him? I don't think he does. He just happens to fall into the Merovingian's clutches because of the anomalous nature of this iteration of the One. I don't know, Zach. I think that's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> well, it is cool. 
But the problem is that, like, once again, it's it's oh god, you have to dig through so yes. much. Yes, to no, get you're not to wrong. It, like, <laughs> and that's what kind of just robs it of its enjoyment. In the moment, I think yes, I'm with you. But I kind of appreciate these movies much, much more now that I've done all this research and stuff like that. Um, and like I was saying at the start, I hope people who listen to this series of us discussing the Matrix movies feel that they've had something explained as well. Like I'm trying to say, like I've done all the deep digging and I'm trying to highlight the uh, the, the main things, so these people don't have to watch five hours of video game cutscenes like I have. <laughs> but you're right on an audience level, Zach. It is like I said before, pretty much impenetrable. It's it's oh god, it's not even impenetrable. It has to be there first. <laughs> um like sure. it's not though like it's not there like it's there in in the lore but like again it's it's a blockbuster yes like like we talk about like when it comes to marvel and star wars how much homework do you have to have for these things to go into it the problem is that like there was nothing like this there like in, in november of 2003 walking out of this if you were intrigued by what happened there there was like outside of some message boards there wasn't anything to really <laughs> yeah like, like, look at, you really had to take years upon years of just, like, like interviews, um, just more stuff expanding the lore to come out for people to get it. Yes, absolutely. And maybe you're right there that it's not in the sense that, you're right, when I say that this movie is, like, impenetrable, I usually use that for things like, you know... Uh, Under the Silver Lake, I think, is impenetrable. Eraserhead might be impenetrable, where it's kind of impenetrable, I guess what I mean is that if you focus in enough and spend enough time thinking about the movie, you might be able to crack it. But you're right. Matrix Revolutions and possibly Reloaded, they're not impenetrable because they inherently don't include all of the puzzle pieces you need to form the full story. So it's almost like, you know, it's manufactured to be unsolvable until you watch all this other ancillary materia material and start to think about it in a grand extent well again they're treating these movies they're (laughs) multi-million dollar budgeted films (laughs) like pieces in a puzzle yes yeah exactly exactly and that is not how you treat mass form entertainment like (laughs) again i I applaud them for their ambition in elaborate storytelling but there's there's a point of no return and, I'm, and I'm with you. I'm, I agree with you there. In terms of a movie, this is probably not what you should do for a blockbuster type of thing. Um, I appreciate it on the weird Rob level that I'm sure everybody oh, got, has gotten the sense of. <laughs> well, no, like, and that's the thing. Like, it's fun. Like when these movies are like, or not even just movies, but like this entire franchise is properly explained. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a great like time. Like it's like, oh, that's what makes you appreciate them. That all this stuff is under the surface. The problem is that it has to be explained to you. Sure, sure. Like, yeah. like that's the thing. Like, nobody just can watch these movies in a nutshell and be like, oh, okay. Um, it's it's like subtext that has to be, <laughs> oh God, like like pressed and laid out. And that's Absolutely. The problem. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're not wrong there. Absolutely, and uh, I hope uh, everybody's enjoying me being the one to explain a lot of these bigger details. But Zach, I I know we're on this kind of whole first Java's Palace Merovingian type thing. You you've mentioned it in this series. You've mentioned it before. We've started doing the Matrix movies. It really is a pretty great moment where M- the Merovingian gives an entire monologue about making the deal for the eyes of the Oracle, and Trinity oh. says, "I don't have time for this shit." You are right. <laughs> that is a great moment. <laughs> like that's but this is the thing that's like so like I, I, again I don't know what they were thinking. Time like is it great? 
um, in a subversive expectation sort of way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, you have this entire sequence where we've devoted, what, 10 to 15 minutes of runtime, if not more, to, like, okay, like, getting to the Merovingian, getting an audience with him, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Monica Bellucci getting off to conflict. Yes. Um, <laughs> she might be the most fascinating character because she just loves getting off to conflict. Um, every to time we passion, see her, like, I, I think we talked about it last week. To passion, Zach. <laughs> conflicted passion. Let's, put, let's compromise and meet in the middle here. Um, no, and then, like, we have all this, and then, like, okay – and it's resolved. Like, next thing we know, we cut to, like, Neo, like, hearing a train appear at the station, and Trinity walks out. And it's like, oh, 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 oh okay. Like, it was that easy. Like, it's just I'm, a train. He's no more than a train ride away. Yeah, I am with you that that Neo getting saved from Limbo is pretty clean. But this movie has so much other stuff to do that I – No. Like, this is the thing, though. The train man is like Bruce Spence does such a phenomenal yeah, job yeah. <laughs> at like the train man. Like I, I just want to see like not just more of him because like he's again he's 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 Boba Fett. It's mm-hmm. the Boba Fett effect. But like he is such an interesting character. Is basically basically like the ferryman that like grants passage of these programs that yeah. are exiled. Yeah. And I'm like that's great. Like I love that he's used so sparingly. But, like, he's in technically the clubhouse sequence, and you can tell all of his stuff was just, like, inserted in. Because, oh, like, something will happen, and then we'll see him, like, basically doing the, uh, oh, God, a salacious crumb thing of Jawa's Palace. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? I got 20 wristwatches. Ha-ha. <laughs> Pretty much, like, as I said, he is the salacious crumb to the Merovingian Jabba, Jabba the Hutt sure. in that sequence. Sure, Where yeah. he's there, but, like, not in any sort of meaningful way. Um, <laughs> and that's the problem, is, is like, there's all these interesting elements that have been introduced. They just don't go anywhere. I, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. I mean, there, there's, there could have been a much grander sequence with rescuing Neo from Limbo and that type of stuff. But I guess this leads me into, you know, as we get out of this, this first act, then type of stuff. It's really not even the first act, the first 15 minutes. The thing that started to really, I, I started to really realize on rewatching this for this recording is that they are setting up so much at the beginning of this movie. So so think about it. Just in like the first 30 minutes, maybe 30, 40 minutes, something like that. They've already rescued Neo. Smith has taken over the Oracle. Uh, Niobian ghosts, they find the Logos and, and get them and their ship back up and running. We understand the entire... I didn't even know they went missing. I didn't even know they went missing well, if it weren't for the fact it was in the goddamn video game. Yes, I know I mentioned that at the very end of last week's episode that Enter the Matrix ends with them, uh, Niobian Ghost and the Logos activating an EMP and going, hope somebody finds us. And that's where this movie starts is them trying to find them. We understand the entirety of like the military operation of Zion. We know who's volunteering for battle. You know, we have the, the kid and Mifune type stuff. We get the Bane set up. Like there is so much shit going on in this movie and I think that's why it works for me so well in this recording the previous two movies are about the individuals the first movie is about Morpheus who who believes so much in the prophecy he has to save the one the one the singular the anomaly Neo and it's about Morpheus's belief in Neo that is you know paid, pays off at the end the second movie is about Neo it's about the one it's about that individual Neo's not even, Neo's not even like technically 
a proactive protagonist until the last 40 minutes of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's why I think this movie is not about any individual. It's about humanity as a whole. Where I, the, when the previous two movies focused on individuality and very small stories, I think it's purposeful that we see basically the silhouette of all of humanity that exists in this movie from Zion to the people trying to get back to Zion to Neo and Trinity trying to go to the machine city. It's, it's so all over the place, but I think that's because this movie's supposed to be about humans and not any one specific character. But this is, this is the thing though, is you're, you're absolutely correct, but there, there needs to be like a, a sh- like it, it treats Neo being like pulled out of the game like an afterthought that has to be cleaned up. Sure. It, it feels like cleanup, like narratively speaking, and that's what's so frustrating. Cause like that first hour is just set up for the conclusion, and we really get no narrative beats from like the. I even like looked at the timestamp, like mm-hmm. from fifty six minutes into like. An hour twenty one, hour twenty three, is literally just action. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Which is Total great. spectacle. Like, I, I, yeah. Well, yeah, it's all spectacle. But that's the thing. The movie just goes from like just again pure matrix nonsense to just spectacle, hard spectacle. And I love it. Like I love the APCs. I oh, love yeah. the Sentinels like pouring out of the like hole in the ceiling. <laughs> um, like I would kill. Like I can, this is how I imagine people felt in 1977 watching the original Star Wars, like mm-hmm. the trench run. I would kill for a theme park ride of like, oh god, the hammer with Jada Pinkett Smith like piling it. I'm oh, just like, yeah. I want, I want to feel that so badly right now. Just like all these like, like, as soon as she like takes off with it, and we see her like do all this stuff, and we cut to I forget what the captain's name of that ship. I forget his name. Roland. Uh, Roland, yes, thank you. We I didn't know the ship could fly like that or move like yeah, that. I know, or, like, yeah, I know. She does like these almost like, oh God, like swimmer's dives movements with it. And like, and you have like the entire time, like like Morpheus is her co-pilot and she's like, like come on, st- cut, st- cut, oh, cut, stay on point with this. And like, he's like, I'm trying. Like that part, and it's fun. Take it down. Take it down to four pads. All power on the left side. Oh, all the flips and shit. I'm so oh, into great. that stuff. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Like that's like that's the part where I'm like, this is fun. Like this is where it feels like the movie is like, like, and like I said, not to say that like I like mindless action, but like this is the sort of stuff that I think people wanted. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's what they want from that second movie of like, okay, all hell is going to break loose. Yes. And the problem is that. God, the entire second movie in the first hour of Revolutions is set up for about 30 minutes of action. Well, um, I mean, I, I that's where I don't know if I agree completely. I mean, this – well, I guess just to be d- – to clarify, um, I, I see the first two movies as set up for these two parallel tracks. One, the war for Zion, and two, Neo facing down Smith, basically, or the machines. But that's but this is the thing though. Like this is the this is where I can't believe I'm gonna give credit for this. Okay. But like I keep thinking of Infinity War and Endgame when it comes to like dealing with a two part like story like this. Because they do similar things, whereas like in Infinity War you have the fight with Thanos in the last what, thirty, forty five minutes of the movie? Yep. Yep. And then in this, you have the Agent Smith fight in Reloaded that takes place, what, in the first hour or so? Yeah, very early on. Yep. And that's the problem is that, like, oh, like, we're, like, we're, 
it, the problem is the movie is hitting you with too much stuff all at once. So it doesn't have the impact it does. Because you look at like when we first see Smith in Reloaded, it's the what? The playground fight? Yes. Or we're yes, call, that's what, like, what would well, you call that? The courtyard fight? Yeah, it, it's the um, – uh, that's when we first see Smith, but he does have the lines when he drops off the earpiece at the beginning of Reloaded. But you're sure, right, but the that's... burly brawl in the playground after the Oracle scene is exactly the first time we see him, I think. But that's – but this is the problem. It's like imagine if you had that moment – and this is where I can't, I can't believe I'm giving him credit. Like, it pains <laughs> me to, to say this. But you look at Infinity War – and Infinity War begins with like, okay, Thanos is this threat that was able to not just dispatch Thor, but uh, Idris Elba and the Hulk. Yes, all like all in the first five minutes, and it's like, okay, this is somebody that has taken down the two most powerful characters in this universe without much energy, and he's accumulating more of it throughout the film. So by the time you get to him in the last fifteen minutes, it's like, oh god. Who can stop him and at what cost? Sure. Whereas we get the Agent Smith burly brawl fight within the first hour, and then Smith is pretty much a non-entity as a antagonist for the rest of the film. Sure, he's the he's like the lurking threat in the second movie. After but that's that fight. but that's yeah. the problem. The movie, like the second movie, does not set up enough of the conflict of just like what Smith's role is at the end of the third film. Because if you don't know what's happening, like. Like, you don't know Smith is a virus. Like, you know he's able to assimilate things, Mm -hmm. but you just don't know how extensive that is. I get where you're coming from, but— We don't know how extensive it is until after he's been defeated. Well, sure, sure. Really, yeah, the the end of that, of of revolutions. So so I I get what you're saying, Zach, but it's like— I didn't feel that way on this rewatch because I was so deep into every line. Like, I love, like we talked about two weeks ago, I love the setup from Agent Smith when he's talking to Morpheus at the end of the first movie, where he's like, I've been infected by humanity. I don't really know what that means, but I feel infected by your your virus of humanity. And that's what he becomes in the second movie. Well, he does, but, like, we just don't know what sort of, like, okay, this is the whole thing that, like, do we know – okay, as you're watching – again, this is what I'm doing. I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody watching this in November of 2003. Sure, sure. That's how I am looking at this. Um, as somebody who's watching this in November 2003, it's like why Why is Neo going to the Machine City? Why? Mm. Like why? Well, like I'm- why is he going to the Machine City? <laughs> like, I, and I'm looking at this as somebody who, who – who, like it's, I'm looking at not just – like I was a kid obviously. I was 11 years old when I saw this. But like I'm looking at this and I'm just like – why? Why is he going to Machine City? Like, it hasn't been established. Like, oh, he just has to go there. And all the, and it's not just simply like, oh, it's not addressed. Like, both Niobe and Roland constantly are asking him why he is doing this. Yeah. And we just get, because I have to. And I'm like, okay, that's cute. Like, that's cute. But, like, no. Not that you have to, like, lay out why specifically. Like, oh, I have to go there so I can defeat Smith because he is a he is the enemy of my enemy. And that will end the war. Like, no, I don't want it laid out in those simple of terms. Sure. It's not just simply as like, I have to stop Purple Man because he has glowy dish glove. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. It's the idea of you have to sit there, just give the audience enough to coast on. And it doesn't do that. Like, things are just happening because the script tells it tells us to. It's like, oh, yes. why are Niobe and, and company racing towards Zion? because the script tells them they have to go there. And it's like, why are they going there? And it's like, oh, like we have to, like we saved the doc. 
and you have uh, what's his name? I forget what his name is. Uh, Martian Manhunter, and oh. he's like <laughs> Command- Commander. Or, sorry, yeah, Commander Locke, played by Harry yes. Lennox. Yes, yes, Martian Manhunter. Um, he's like you could you could save the doc. You just gave it to them on a silver platter, and it's like. Literally, like, 15 minutes ago, your little, like, first lieutenant said, we've lost the doc. I'm like, why are we having this conversation? It's like, like, like nothing makes sense. Like, clearly, Niobe would have known by, like, blowing through the, the gate. Like, you are literally, like, ripping open a hole for the Sentinels to come through. At least before you had them bottlenecked. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's just happening because they felt compelled. Like, it just felt like it had to happen like this this film is very like at times feels incomprehensible and at other times it's just extremely rushed like things are just happening because they have to happen at this moment it's like the mortal engine syndrome we're like hugo weaving is going toward the wall it's like <laughs> wait wait why is he going toward the wall he hates walls wait wait why is there a wall why is he hated all right we are blowing a hole through the wall it's like what's the name of the wall remember we laughed about that line hugo being like we have to take down the blank wall why can't i remember do you remember what it is i don't know it's zion let's call it zion (laughs) if it was actually zion that would be hilarious (laughs) we'll call it mobile avenue how about that um (laughs) sure Uh, that's the thing though rob is that like no like i appreciate these movies for the gonzo nonsense that 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 they are um but like is coherent storytelling these the first two fill i would say all three of the films fail i think all three of the films when it comes to coherent storytelling fail because the first one is deliberately obtuse the the style was able to sugarcoat everything else then by the time you get to the second, third one, it's just like completely off the rails. It's there if you put like enough. It's like decoder glasses, but it's not just one pair. You got to wear like fourteen different pairs of decoder glasses. Um, <laughs> if, if I may give an, may I give a quasi anecdote analogy? Back in high school, Rob used to have this joke when it came to like. Um, Oh God! Like this, this is a Rob. If everybody want to know what Rob was like in high school, this is your perfect example. It was a what a. Um, Oh God! Was it an amps joke, like electricity amps joke? Like Rob wanted to get enough clappers, clap on, clap and plug them into each other. Yes, yes. So so he would be able to turn his PS2 on (laughs) with clappers, but because of the amount of what, what would it be, Rob? Was it amps? There was something. Yeah, there was something like you'd only attach or equip. Because the clapper was a thing you plugged into your wall and then plugged something else into it. Yes. And then when you clap, like it would like the two claps. I think it was what I think it was two for on, if I remember correctly. But I, I, whatever. But it was like that only generated enough to like turn on a lamp. You know, like you couldn't just plug a clapper into the wall and then plug in a TV. It wouldn't work because of the you know the the mini. I guess it would be a transformer in the clap on thing. So I was like, well, just get a bunch, like get a <laughs> bunch of them. And just make the power to turn on something like, like Zach Rob's said, a PS2 joke, or Rob's a computer. Jo- <laughs> and Rob's joke was you'd have to applaud every time he wanted to turn this PS2 yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, because if you attach them in, in series, you would have to do the claps for each one to build the power. So you'd have to just sit there and go... <laughs> and, like, eventually your PlayStation would turn on. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, okay, an anecdote... <laughs> I forgot about that completely, Zach. I should still try that. I have one clapper, though. I need more. 
It's the holidays, Rob. You can they're not hard to come by. God, I um, bet those are in what an end cap at Bed Bath and Beyond for like a dollar oh, each, probably oh, five dollars each. Yeah, um, pro- they probably were made the same year these films were made. <laughs> yeah, um, but this is the thing though. It's like this is what that level of storytelling feels like. It's like you just need so many like just things like on top of each other in order to get it started, and that's my problem with these movies is that like it's it's just the the barrier to entry is so high there it's not worth it for mass audiences like that's like it's it's reasons why the matrix sequels and i wouldn't even say sequels the entire franchise sure is why like marvel got so bland like why marvel's so popular because it's so bland in that like it's every single movie is the same every movie follows the exact same story beat and do they build off each other yes but because the barrier to entry is so low and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's why again i never blamed marvel marvel is successful because it does, it's basically a ham and cheese on white bread sure um, <laughs> and that like anybody can appreciate it except for like a handful of people but that's the thing though. there's a lot to appreciate in these movies they just like make it so difficult and that's the thing is that like and then when you do get to those sequences where you can just kind of like like lean back it's it's not a lot of fun because you're just kind of like just letting it happen again like from the 56 minute mark to the hour and like 22 it's just spectacle and then we get then we cut back like that like the action's over we cut back to neo and trinity and he's doing things that once again are inexplicable um, and then we go to the Machine City and Trinity's dead because the script tells us Trinity has to die because if she survives this, there's nothing for her to do. She <laughs> has to die because she is literally run out of gas. Um, yeah, she would then, have she would have zero way back from the Machine City. If she exactly. Lived. Yeah. That's the thing. She dies because there's literally she re- she has reached a character dead end. Uh, I know what you're saying. I guess I guess I know I'm a. This is one of the weirdest things. I agree with everything you said, Zach. From the objective, critical standpoint, you're probably right. I would say you're 99% right. The Matrix movies suck as movies. They are <laughs> they are so dense. And I want to I want to dive into that a little, little bit more. But a, a real quick correction, so I don't have to do it in, in, in editing. In the Mortal Engines, they are destroying the shield wall of Batmunk Gumpa. <laughs> <laughs> so it Hugo Weaving says we have to move on the shield wall or whatever it is, you know. Shield um, wall. I will pull that Rob, clip up because I'm sure I saved it. I don't need to go through the movie again. I'm sure I saved it Rob, when we discussed. May, before Mortal you Engines. insert the clip, may I ask you a Mortal Engines question? Oh God, uh, Hester who? Shaw. Hester <laughs> Shaw. Um, no. Who is the curator of the museum on New London? I can picture him. Are you asking for the oh, actor's yeah. name? No, no, no. The character's oh, name. Oh, I'm not going to remember the character's name. <laughs> oh, God. Isn't his name Chutney Porteroy? Ch- oh, my God. It, like Chutney Porteroy or like Chutney Blompkin or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Chudley Pomeroy. <laughs> Played by Colin Salmon. I didn't know his last name was Salmon. My Chudley name Pomeroy. is Salmon. Susie Salmon. (laughs) The world is changing. London must now look beyond municipal Darwinism and move into a new age.
Tonight, we set a course for the savage heartland of the Anti-Traction League. The shield wall of Shanguo. The lands beyond will become our new hunting ground. Did you see that somebody actually posted on the Cinemati subreddit asking if we would cover the Lovely Bones? Did you see that? I did not. Okay. Jesus. It was kind of weird. I know I responded to – I don't have it pulled up, so excuse me not giving the credit. But, I like, somebody posted it was, like, this whole fucking essay about the Lovely Bones with the title, the subject of the post being, Will Robin Zach cover the two, 2009's The Lovely Bones? And I read everything this guy had to say, which is so, like, time and a place of when he saw it and stuff like that and what he thought about it. And my response is, I've never seen it, but, like, Zach just bought it on Blu-ray or something, so maybe? <laughs> like, it was kind of weird. Like, you were telling me about the lovely bones, and then someone posted about it on our Reddit. <laughs> That's a that is a uh, that is an odd movie. That yes. is uh, it, yeah. it's not it's not weird enough. I don't think we would ever discuss it. It has a goofy ending that I kind of find funny. But no, it's an odd movie for like in Peter Jackson canon. It's an yeah, odd movie. That's the main reason I think I'd ever check it out. Um, but. But, yeah, it's a doozy. Okay. Uh, As of now, no. Whoever yeah. <laughs> wrote this, uh, we appreciate your enthusiasm, but it's going to be a no from us, dog. Uh, what's her name? Cersei Ronan, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, we'll, maybe we'll get to her eventually. Who knows? But not anytime soon. We're, or Peter Jackson, I guess. We've done Dead Alive. We're good. <laughs> so, but to get back to your point, Zach, the, the idea that, yes, I'm in agreement with you. These movies are so... I, I know I said impenetrable, but that's not the right word. They're obfuscated. They're they're clearly made to make it difficult to understand. And I think that's what the Wachowskis were going for, like we talked about last week with the um the interconnected media storytelling and things like that. But I'm with you. Even if you've done all that research on a surface level, you really still have to put the time in and go through all 80 clappers to understand this stuff. So I'm I'm with you. Objectively, these movies probably suck as storytelling devices. But On a narrative level, I think these are objectively bad movies. I think I'm kind of with you, but you have to believe uh, – not that you have to believe. You have to know, and you do know, and our cinema audience knows that if you give me a movie like this and you make me do research to understand them, and when it all comes together in the way that these do, that's why I love them even more type of thing. But I'm with you, Zach. You're probably right. These movies are probably narratively, objectively horrendous. <laughs> the first one being the possible exception, right? No, that- no. Because no, that's the thing. Because the movie, because the movie is so slick. It's a definition of style. The first one is style over substance. Oh, that's a fair where- point. With what we talked about, audiences taking from it the style more than the substance. That's, Absolutely, and that's the thing. And the second one was ri- was able to ride the coattails of that. Yep. And by the third one, audiences said no. It was it was a hard no. Yeah, yeah. Um, arguably one of the worst uh, dec- I, I drop offs from a sequel. Like I honestly just like like practically unheard of to this day. Back in the day, like it was I would imagine shocking to everybody involved. That that was the third one, especially. God, six months later, was that thoroughly rejected by everybody? Yes. So this was – I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, the sequel – or Reloaded versus this one, the six-month time difference between them. Did you read that that was not the original plan, that they were originally supposed to be like only a month and a half apart or maybe even less? And But the six months I... came because of um, the feedback from the sequel? I, I never heard that. Oh, okay. So I, I found that in some of my research that it was supposed to be a lot closer than it actually was. I don't think that there's too much stuff in this third movie that made me think like, oh, they were taking into account feedback. But one thing, it takes them 18 minutes 
to call the Merovingian the Merovingian. They call him the <laughs> Frenchman for the first eight. It literally, I think it's like the 17 minute mark when the first time we hear the word Merovingian is from the train man who says it to Neo. But all that stuff with Raman Kandra and Sati in the train station in Mobile Avenue, he keeps calling him the Frenchman. I, I was like, th- this had to be a note. Like nobody wanted to say Merovingian, so we're calling him the Frenchman instead. I don't know. Did, did that, does that make sense? Yeah, like no Merovingian is like one of those things where it's just that, like it's it's delightfully goofy. Yeah, but yeah. once again, like Frenchman's just like straight to the point. Like that's what he should like. If it weren't for the train man, <laughs> I have no problem with being called the Frenchman. Everybody's just the blank man, the French man, the the train man. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, okay, so I, I have a lot about this third movie, the the themes of it, that type of thing. I, I guess one thing that you mentioned, Zach, in your um, in what you've been talking about, I'm glad you said it, because I wrote it down as well. You said, specifically, if I remember correctly, um, you said that, you know, we leave Neo at the 56-minute mark, and for about a solid 30 minutes, we are gone from Neo and Trinity, and we are just looking at the war uh, War for Zion, and, you know, the hammer, uh, Niobe and Morpheus getting back in the hammer. I am so glad you looked at the timestamp, Zach, because the 56-minute mark is exactly when Neo gets blinded, and then we don't see him for 30 fucking minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I kind of love, but I wanted to pick your brain, because you said you saw this in the theaters back in the day. As a fan of these movies, and maybe you could also give us some enlightenment on, like, maybe the audience reaction— I've always thought that our main hero being blinded halfway through the movie is a major fuck you to the audience that I kind of love the audacity of. I don't, I don't, well, what, it's what it's the, funny. It's yeah. it's funny you mention that because in the blank check discussion for evolution, I figured this would come up. I, this I did not listen to this one. I listened to some of Reloaded, like I mentioned last week. I did not do any blank check research. This is all you, Zach. Enlighten us. <laughs> that this is the thing they mentioned that because they were very cold on revolutions relative to Reloaded. Okay. And the thing is that, like, this is a very mean movie. That was their thing to the characters. Like, it's a very mean movie. Like, it's very nihilistic, mm-hmm. um, which is almost the the antithesis to what I think the Wachowskis are going for. Yeah, Clear- this is the most hopeful movie at the end of it. The last scene but- with Sati, the Oracle, and the Architect is, like, the most optimistic thing ever. <laughs> yeah, I, no, this is a, a this is a very mean movie to, I'd say, almost everybody involved except for, like, Morpheus and Niobe. Um, yeah, Morpheus... I know that a lot of people complain that Morpheus gets sidelined for this movie. You know, he's in the the secondary captain's chair while he is a captain of a ship, you know, uh, for most of the film. But I don't think that's the case. I think that there's no purpose to to focus on Morpheus. He's just another human. And at the end of the movie, we get the great, great moment where he realizes that his choice to free Neo, which, remember, from the first movie was breaking protocol— so his desire to break protocol and save Neo was actually fulfilled when he ends when Neo ends the war. And there's a great moment where Morpheus gets to say, like, I always thought this would happen, but now it's actually happening. Is it real? And I'm like, fuck yeah, Morpheus. Like, that's great arc. End to your arc type of thing. It is, but the problem is that, like, he has, like, he's, like, by the end of two, and when Neo's telling him, like, it was all a farce, it was all part of their plan. Yes. He's like, I don't believe it. 
Then we have one, like, what, minute-long sequence of him with, with the Oracle, where really nothing is resolved. It just kind of just sits there, like, like kind of just simmering. Well, I think that, then, that, that has a big notion of the theme of the movie being cooperation and pronouns. We'll get to that later, though. Please continue, Zach. <laughs> well, no, like, the whole point of the movie, like, it's very, very uh, cryptic at the end with, with the Oracle and the Architect, is that, like, did you know this was going to happen? And it's like... No, but I believe. But I believed, absolutely. Yep. And that's that's the thing where it's like and like that's not what you want from the ending of like the Matrix trilogy, where like a bunch of characters are sitting on a park bench being like, Did you know this was gonna happen? No, not really. <laughs> oh, I know what you're saying, Zach, but it's the best yeah, possible I, ending for I these know, movies. I like, I like <laughs> no, I, I okay, I don't know if I like it, but I enjoy <laughs> it enough. Um, no, like, I enjoy this on every level, like, now that, like, I've had nearly 20 years to kind of just sit on it, um, and I've gone through kind of, like, all the phases of depression regarding these films, um, no, like, no, I think the ending's great, like, I love, like, we haven't even talked about, like, the Oracle, like, the the Smith thing with the Oracle and Sadi and Seraph, um, Smith at the end with his thing with like after he like he fights Neo and like in the little like uh street crater. Yep. No, like I enjoy all this, but I don't enjoy it because it's objectively good. I enjoy it because like it, there's such a level of like unintentional like goofiness. Yes. Um that rides the line between brilliance and camp. Um <laughs> and that's what it is. And that's why like again, like I, I think about revolutions. God damn it, resurrections! I keep screwing up these titles. Because uh, they all start it, with it, R. Didn't I we talk know. about two weeks ago? It's going to be called Relusions, <laughs> Illusions with an R in front of it, or something. The, the like problem is that. that like Reloaded sounds different enough. Like the syllables are enough removed from Revolutions and Resurrections. Oh sure. That sure. I'm able to kind of like like uh, parse that one aside. Do you think uh, it's the syllables? Or you think it's the beginning? You think it's the re in Reloaded versus too, the, but the like re Revolutions, in Resurrections, re- the same level, like same level, yeah, same number of syllables and they sound similar. Revolutions. Revolutions. Yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's the rise of Skywalker. Yeah, okay. (laughs) That's the thing that scares me about Resurrections, though, is that idea of like, okay, uh, Lily is not there. This is the first time we've ever had a Wachowski work on like something of this scale. And I saw an interview with Lana, and Lana's like, like, like I was in, like, I lost both my parents. I was in a deep place of grief, and this was my way of healing. Was going back to these characters I held such so dear to my heart, and then like it's like, oh god, I'm like, I just don't know what to make of any of this because I'm like, you look at their filmography post revolutions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it just gets more and more gonzo with each film exactly <laughs> and i'm just like oh my god like I, I just don't know like i want an objectively good wachowski's film but i don't think there is anything okay I, i'm with you i don't i don't want to get into resurrections yet because i'm have a no, lot no, but, more but, thoughts but, on but that this, later but, no, but, this, but this is the point though about revolutions sure is that like in this interview lana's like because the interviewer is like okay like when you were writing reloaded in revolutions and filming them wasn't it always supposed to be a story that concludes and and she's like yes this is that was always the plan like i'm not gonna lie this was a definitive end to the story mm-hmm. and it wasn't until a couple of years ago where i realized how important these characters are not just to me but to audiences 
that like after years upon years and she even says it she's like warner brothers back like the money truck up to the house a couple of times and me and, and lily were like no like we don't want to go back to this <laughs> that like it was when it was like because of a place of grief that i decided to go back to these like characters and world that's you know, i like, i think i read i i read i think some of the transcript from that same interview if i'm remembering it correctly it's not that old. It's only from like, like maybe like a month and a half ago. Exa- yeah, exa- exactly. I was doing it for this research, um, uh, for the research for this this uh, discussion. I have to say, I I mean, it's something but I said before. I, I don't want it to come across as like as like negative or anything. I want art to come from a place of grief and desperation, which makes me excited for this new Matrix movie. But no, but the point, the, how I'm trying to tie this back to Revolution, sure, is that like this is a very oh god it's not nihilistic at all and that's kind of the thing though it's like where do you go from here like yes we get that line at the end where it's like will we ever see neo again it's like oh i think we will and it's like okay but the whole are you talking about when sati says i made the sun the sunrise for him i hope neo comes back that type of thing yeah okay yeah it, it, it goes back to the ending of the film where it's like you you have oracle smith fighting neo and and getting robbed this is where between your personal interpretation what your research tells you how i've interpreted the ending in the last like four years is that like the reason why neo is able to undo smith is that he chooses to succumb he doesn't allow that's the thing it's not allowing smith or it's not smith forcing his what would you even call it? Uh, assimilation. It's allowing him to assimilate him. It's the choice that is what undoes Smith because then the Matrix does what? puts puts the 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 antivirus into Smith using Neo as the vessel. It basically activates a, a defrag thing, which I mentioned in the first movie. You know that they should have done a while ago. But uh, one. Zach, I wanted to say, in the last scene of The Matrix Revolutions, when Sati and the Oracle are on that bench, did you notice that on the bench there is an engravement that says, in memory of Thomas Anderson? Did you notice that? I did not. Okay, so that's a very important part, that that bench that is created as the new iteration of the sixth Matrix at what is what it would be. Seventh? Seventh? Sixth? I think it's the seventh. I think it's the seventh, because there, no, there was no Neo in the first Paradise Matrix the Oracle only included that in the second Matrix, and I'm pretty sure the architect at the end of the last movie says there were five predecessors. So one instance of none, and then five more. Yeah, this would be the seventh. Okay, so seventh. The, the, yeah, that engravement is on there. There's a little plaque that talks about how, you know, that was in, in memory of Thomas Anderson. There, There's some notion of that, you know, in the first movie, he's referred to as Thomas A. Anderson, but... From what I've been hearing, this is all rumors, that in the new movie, Neo or Keanu Reeves' character is going to be Thomas S. Anderson. More on that later when I talk about the Matrix MMO. <laughs> but to to get on your other point, Zach, the Smith thing. How does Smith get defeated? It is through Neo letting himself get assimilated and then the machines power surging or defragging through Neo to destroy all the Smiths. But here's the thing that I love so goddamn much, which I think you you said very, very well, is that Smith's downfall is exactly what the Oracle told him at the start of the third movie. And what the Oracle's been telling us in all of these movies. The Oracle says that nobody can see past a choice they don't understand. 
So when you get, like, Neo talking to the Oracle, and Neo's like, you know, you know how this is going to play out. And she goes, no, 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 I don't. I can't see past choices I don't understand. And she always says that exact phrase, even in this movie, to Neo and, I think, to Morpheus and uh, Trinity at the start, and then even to Smith after he's assimilated um, Sati and Seraph. She says, nobody can see past a choice they don't understand. And I fucking love that at the end of the movie, Smith's downfall is not because he can't see beyond a choice that he made that he doesn't understand. He can't see beyond the choice that Neo makes. We get that great monologue where he's like, you know, Mr. Anderson, why do you persist? Why do you fight back? Why do you keep, you know, drawing us into this eternal struggle? And Neo says, because I choose to. And that is the choice that Smith can't see beyond. Smith is something like the architect or like the Merovingian, who are so bound by their parameters of construction, which I know we talked a lot about la- a lot about last week, that he thinks he's in his own head. He's in his own head. He thinks that he can make these choices, but when he realizes that his powers of precognition that he gained from the Oracle are so grandiose that he's not looking at things the right way. And he is overthrown because he doesn't understand Neo's decisions. Oh, God, that is so cool to me, Zach. You know, the whole thing where he's like, you know, I've seen it. I beat you. And technically, Smith does beat Neo. But then that undoes all of Smith, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that, that's the thing. Like, it's cl- that, The problem, though, is that, like, A, it's done visually, which is perfect. Oh, are you talking about, like, that, that uh, shattering into light type of thing? Well, no, not like that. But, like, it's uh, this is where the, the Wachowskis are doing the right thing. They're just the, the audience. We, it's another instance of the filmmakers we need but we don't deserve. <laughs> okay. Um, in that, like, that part I have no problem with. That is competent filmmaking. The problem is that, like, you just, like, 25 minutes earlier just had, like, 30 minutes of just, like – cacophony of just this explosions and sound okay yeah let can we can we do a quick maybe not quick but can we sidebar into this the final smith fight it's so fucking goofy and i love it (laughs) it is one of the goofiest things i think i've ever seen in in cinema period like the the water shock waves the shots of all the water blowing up and then falling down at the same time the cgi goop of people punching each other in their faces the flying around Dude, on paper, I should hate this, but I am all about it. <laughs> it's the problem is that like it after the burly brawl and everything we just saw with the machines and Zion and 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 the hammer, it comes across as gratuitous and well, derivative. I, I think that that is where I'm gonna disagree with you. This this needs to be the final showdown. Neo versus Smith has to be the final showdown of this trilogy from everything they've set up. Even in the start, when when the Neo, when um Agent Smith, who's just Smith, sorry, Smith at the beginning of Revolutions goes to the Oracle and tries to assimilate her, like, he has the whole thing where he's like, I am an aberration just like this iteration of the One. 
You know, he's saying he's so upset. Agent Smith, Smith, sorry, is so upset about the Oracle's power of precognition that he smashes her plate of cookies. And he is so angry that he is so intrinsically tied to the one, which on this iteration of the Matrix is the Oracle's creation. And the Oracle then, as the architect says at the end of the movie, gives the keys to the kingdom to Smith, who is the, the he's not the foil of the one. He's the complement of the one. Because as the architect says at the end of the second movie, the, I think he says, what, 1% of anomalous code has to be bundled together and given to a human. That becomes the one, and that's the reason the Matrix can work, because it reaches this critical mass, and now we've included and captured the anomaly to reset it when it becomes too anomalous, basically. But now there's this new instance in this iteration of the Matrix that not only has the anomalous code, the 1% that the architect talks about, been put into Neo, who's made a different choice, like we talked about last week, falling in love with one person rather than humanity as a whole, the other 90% of the, 99% of that anomaly goes into Smith. Like that is the trade-off is that you always have to balance the equation. So when you have two characters that are that closely tied together, you have to have them fight off. The, I, I, it's like the Luke and Darth Vader thing, right? Like how else would these movies end? You need the big bad versus the big good. Well, y y yes, but the problem is that the Burly Brawl, Brawl has undermined that. Like, well, and that's why, and in, I think that's why people, everybody forgets too, like, that's the reason why people find Return of the Jedi underwhelming. Is that, like, you have the fantastic conflict of, or, or, or confrontation between Luke and Darth Vader on Bespin, and that's where the tension is, is because, like, okay, Luke hasn't finished his training, and we don't know, like, we know Darth Vader is powerful, we just don't know how powerful he is. Well, well, and that's where the tension comes from, is like, okay, what's going to happen? Like, by the time we get to the climax of Revolutions, we know because smith has assimilated his way we, we don't even know that entirely we just know like smith has just continu continued to do what he was doing in the last the movie. program smith has grown out of your control as neo says but we have <laughs> that's the thing though as of like oh god like what has smith done since the burly brawl at that point he's assimilated the oracle and that's it well we we get the implication he's been assimilating everybody you know? That's fine, but, but that but we don't know. That's not true because we saw Club Hell and the Merovingian. Like if we saw it, so, this yes. is how this movie should have like, – not should have. It's not even should have. This is how my interpretation was. If you wanted to show the severity of Smith, we should have seen like, – A, they should have made it abundantly clear, not used cryptic veiled dialogue and reloading well, to establish how with ancient... the Wachowskis. Yeah. I mean <laughs> – yeah, I know. It's like – it's like it's like how do we separate Catholicism from the Pope? Um, it's, <laughs> yes, that's kind of what it is. But like in the second film, we should have established how deep the roots of the Matrix run, and then in the third film, we should have spent more time on Smith just like infecting every aspect of the Matrix. I don't and see. I I'm with you. I know what you're saying. I don't agree with that though because we got that scene in Reloaded right before the Burly Brawl. He's like. The good thing about me, oh, not even the burly brawl. Also, in the um, the back doors of the um, the when the keymaker gets him into the the hallways, the back door hallways. The Smith says things keys... like, "It's all me. It's all me, me, me." You know. That's the thing, but like that's the thing, though, is that like that's fine, but we, we all at that point, all we've seen him do is assimilate a bunch of like random passerbyers in a courtyard. And then we have him, like, in the hallway of doors, which doesn't make... The problem is the movie doesn't even explain to us what the hallways of doors are. Well, I mean, well, 
Uh, you're right. The movie does not. I think I did to our audience <laughs> last week. Rob's like, damn it, why can't everybody devote 96 hours of their life? To I know, right? Come on. <laughs> no, I mean, I've got, I'm, I'm totally with you, Zach, that these, you're opening my, my mind to no, something. No, I'm not, but that's the thing, though. I'm not trying to, again, there's no shortage of crapping on these movies. Absolutely. I'm not trying to convince anybody. My frustration comes from is that, like, the people who hate these movies hate them for the wrong reasons. I, I would agree with you completely there. Absolutely. It's, it's the reason why people hate these movies, the same reason why people hate, like, contemporary Star Wars, in that, like, they're mad because they bought a chocolate chip cookie and they're mad it's not a steak. And it's <laughs> okay. like it's like it's like no you can't get mad at something because you wanted a steak and you got a chocolate chip cookie sure um it's like no like you it's like you don't get a steak at the bakery and and, and that's the problem is that like you have I, I, by the time you get to this franchise like again i remember like with again rob and i talked about this when he was out here in new york and that like you look at like so much of the discourse after that resurrections trailer debuted and it's a lot of people like after those sequels, fuck these this franchise. And I'm like, good, don't buy a ticket. Like, like <laughs> you are not you are not going to like this movie on any level if that's how you're looking at this. Yep, yep, I would agree. Um, you and, had, and you had 20 years to recontextualize this, and you've chosen to stay ignorant. Yes, yeah, I'm with you there. I've seen that discourse as well. The the lingering distaste for these Matrix. I don't. Sequels. But that's the thing, though. I don't. I, this is the thing, though. I I, I don't think it's. People who disliked Reloaded Revolutions were disenchanted because they didn't get what they wanted. That's sure, fine. Sure. As an 11-year-old, that was me in November 2003, disillusioned and disenchanted because I didn't get what I thought I wanted. Almost 20 years later, I have, I've had time to sit on these movies, and I go, they might not be objectively great, but for what they were trying to do, they're pretty darn good. Yes. And, and the and- problems that you have – you have a lot of professional film critics that have choose either chosen to stay intentionally ignorant or are just so dumb and vacuous they okay. they just they can't see the forest for the trees. I'm I'm with you. Like like I've been saying, I love these movies. I've thought about them clearly way too much. We haven't even covered a third of my notes on what I have to say in this episode. But I'm with you, Zach. The the when you just said kind of the critical refusal to reevaluate these movies. I think that might be breaking down a little bit because now we know we're getting another one. The thing I wanted to bring up, which is very important as we lead into The Matrix 4, I have been seeing a lot of discourse on the internet that the the hatred or the dislike, distaste, whatever you want to call it, from The Matrix sequels has snowballed into distaste for... I, I, I might not be saying this correctly, but for trans persons in general. Um, I think there's a big thing there is that a lot of people who disliked Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions upon their release, thinking they were slighted because it didn't didn't take the story elements they wanted them to take, that type of thing, the whole thing we've been discussing this series. And I now think, you know, these people are using the fact that Larry and Andy Wachowski transitioned into Lana and Lily Wachowski as a fact of like, oh, we can just meme this and make fun of it. I don't know. Have you been seeing any of that on the Internet? Uh, I, I, okay. I don't know. Um, the problem is that the Wachowskis, like, in, in, 
This is the weird thing about them. I don't know. I, I think their transgenderism is the least of their problems as filmmakers. Oh, absolutely. Anybody who's no, no, harping no, on that, I, I just want to say, for no, the no. record, anybody who's harping on the Wachowskis transitioning is is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the I know, storytelling is, I want to talk this about. Is, but that's the thing, though. I don't th- – this is the problem. When I say it's the least of their problems – I mean, they can't tell a coherent story to save their lives. Well, yeah, we've also – we know that for sure. <laughs> Tune in next week. Um, maybe? Well, yeah, maybe. Jupiter, Tune in to the Jupiter Ascending episode. Uh, I would like to say that if uh, we do not release our Jupiter Ascending episode next week, next Monday, our audiences feel feel free to file a tax grievance against Cinemodities. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think that's the thing though is that like – the Wachowskis are mean because they basically like Rob and I are fans of theirs, but they made very oh god non populist films that were sold as populist films. Non populist is the objective way to say it. Uh, I think the more subjective way is ambitious, creative, and probably ahead of their time. But that's me speaking know. as a fan. I don't. I, don't I, I guess I think Speed Racer has layers to it that are that can be appreciated. Well, Speed Racer uh, is one of the greatest films ever. Period. No, Speed Racer is <laughs> great, but it, it it could have been refined a little bit. Um, it's it's an unpolished gem. That's probably the best way to describe Speed Racer. Okay. It's there. It just needs a little bit more kind of just like smoothing out those edges. Cloud Atlas was never going to break out. Well, Three Cloud hours. Atlas is is probably the greatest film uh, of all time. Um, but you know, um, and then, I I, and then, I want to mention and, Bound because I think you still have not seen Bound. Bound is I, is very stylized but vacuous. That's but that's but that's yes. I, I I have not seen that. You are correct. But that's before the Matrix. That's like talking yes. about like Piranha Two: The Spawning when it comes to Jimmy C. It's like, is it yeah. there? Yes, but it, it doesn't play any role. They in the also wrote Bound. Jimmy C. Did not write Piranha Two: The Spawning, so that's it's, another thing. You know, sure. I but, think what I'm saying. What I'm just saying. I, I'm agreeing with you. Bound is stylized, but not substantive as well. Sure. And I think the problem is that like Dave, like it's weird that it took as long as it did for the Matrix to kind of run out of like cachet. Mm-hmm. But Jupiter, Jupiter ascending was Jupiter ascending yep. is the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh, absolutely! In that, like, it was like they had. That's the thing. Everybody respected them. Like people didn't like the film critics did not like two and three, but they respected them. They respected them through. They crapped on Speed Racer, but respected them. Yes. They they applauded Cloud Atlas, but still said like, okay, this is this is niche at best. Yeah. Then <laughs> then Jupiter Ascending happens, and literally everybody was just like, no, like it's like no, like, like we've given you the benefit of the doubt now for over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. No. What was the, and that's what's the why, Terry not that's uh, not Terry Gilliam's character because Terry Gilliam is in Jupiter Ascending. Um, he files a tax grievance if I remember correctly. The guy who helps Mila Kunis get her princess was Space Advocate Bob or what isn't what yeah, do you remember what yeah, his name is? Okay, Space Advocate something. Yeah. Shit's great. We we recorded that episode over two months ago now, and it's not gonna come out for another month and a half. <laughs> uh, turnstiles. Um. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with them. Is they they're not go. I kind of forgot what our our impetus for this was. No, no, uh, you're, you're right. Is, is that they, they they have major problems, which I think you know. This is the encapsulation of what we've been talking about the previous two weeks. The Wachowskis have major problems formulating a cohesive story for an audience, and it takes time and work to parse through what's going on. And I I don't know if you said this exactly, Zach, but it's something I I've said forever. 
most audience members are not like us. We're, they're not going to put the work in. Where if they watch a two-hour movie and they don't follow what's going on, they're going to say, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. It's what, it's what happened. I have to bring it up because it fits so perfectly. It's what happened with Justin in Southland Tales. So many times Justin has said to me, he's like, if anybody watches that movie, they will not understand what is going on. And I'm like, well, no, clearly not, because I watched it once, and I got a sense of what was going on. I didn't get everything, but it's not like I was confused to shit or anything like that. And I think most audience members for these Matrix movies and the Wachowskis in general come in it that way. They're like, if I'm sitting down for two hours to watch a movie, if everything doesn't click or, you know, if everything doesn't fit the way I want it to, and I'm not engaged. I just think it's bad, everything's bad, and I'm going to spread my bad word of mouth about it, that type of thing. Yeah, unfortunately. Very unfortunately, because I know whenever our Jupiter Ascending episode does come out, I know Zach and I spend, like, a fucking hour on Eddie Redmayne's performance. Where Zach and I know we can say, like, let's look at this performance and dissect it, where most people are going, why does Eddie Redmayne suck? And then another five people go, my friend said Eddie Redmayne sucked, you know? And it just snowballs from there. It becomes the virus that Smith is at the end of this movie. <laughs> No, that's that's the unfortunate reality of the Wachowskis. And that's why I think, like, the writing on the wall with uh, Resurrections is that, like, it was a film that, like, I remember back when, like, the guys, like, this time last year where, where Warner Brothers, HBO was like, we're going to put all of 2021 on the streaming for service because mm-hmm. people are afraid to leave the house. <laughs> it was like, and like, it was just like The Matrix 4 and the joke was between Rob and I was like, there's no way they're going to dump this on a streaming service. And I think this is going to be in the same thing as Dune. Like, they know they have a very niche film on their hands. Yes. And, and, and it's like, and it's a write-off. This entire year is a write-off for them and The Matrix 4 won't be any different. Absolutely, absolutely. So one of the one of the other things that I just wanted to mention before we um we we got past it too much uh, with with Smith in general, I know I mentioned it before, but Smith being the the remainder of the equation of Neo, which I think is said in both the second and third movies, I just wanted to reiterate because I know I've been talking about it last two weeks. Smith is such a great character. Hugo Weaving plays it so awesome. I love that all this stuff is set up in the first movie with him talking about being infected by the humans, the virus of humanity. He has that great line in the first movie that I mentioned where he's like, you know, I think it's the smell. Not that I know what that is, you know, that type of thing. And then I love that, you know, he's he's growing. He chooses not to be exiled or deleted. The whole point of the last movie was choice. But then this third movie... Smith is the one that needs to be defeated. He's the other 99% of the anomalous equation that Neo has to balance out. But I love the fact that Smith is the one character in the movie. Basically. I mean, you can probably find some really weird minor character that falls into this as well. But Smith is the one character in the movie that doesn't make a deal with somebody. And I wanted to bring this up. I think the first movie is all about perspective. Remember, Zach, I talked about how there's a lot of reflections. It's about finding your true self and making sure other people see your true self. The whole first movie is about perspective, the human perspective. The second movie is entirely about choice. It's entirely about how humans have to make choices, and when we give machines or programs such a large set of parameters that they mimic human choice, and we all have to make choices, whether they be limited to our parameters of construction in a machine or our parameters of belief in humanity. The third movie is about cooperation, and cooperation being tentative 
and and tenuous, I guess would be the other other way to say it. You have to think. Just just Zach and the audience think about this. How many fucking characters are making deals in this third movie? You have uh, the two programs making a deal with the Merovingian to get Sati back into the Matrix. The, the program without a use. To unexile Sati and give her to the Oracle, basically. You have the deal between Morpheus, Seraph, and Trinity with the Merovingian to steal the eyes of the Oracle. Even though that deal doesn't go through, that deal is clearly stated. That that is what the Merovingian wants. He wants to do a uh, quid pro quo type of thing. The machines. They make a, a deal with... Okay, Ben is calling me. Should I answer it? What do you think? <laughs> the Ben Deucer? The, yeah, the Ben Deucer. The Ben Deucer. You want to get him on real quick? <laughs> he's calling you on Skype? No, he's calling me on my cell phone. Oh, that's weird. He's calling you on Skype. Oh, he just... I, it just no, he called me on his phone. It just, it just hung up. I think he... Okay, he also texted me how flexible we are tomorrow. Okay, he would not have had anything good to add, but um, I'll edit this out. I thought we might be able to get him on and be like, Ben, what do you think about Smith and the Matrix? But anyway. <laughs> so... Um, Neo with the machines at the end. Neo goes to the machine city and he makes a deal with the character of the machine city. Zach, I don't know if you know this, the, the big baby Deus face. Deus Ex Machina. He's actually credited as Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> Kevin Michael Risterson does the voice, a very famous voice actor. Thought that was hilarious. But Neo makes a deal with the machines. And also, you have, you have so many deals being made through this movie. You have, you know, Niobe saying, Neo, I'll give you the Logos, but we'll take the hammer. Like, that's our deal. This movie is so much about cooperation. And not just cooperation in the sense of working together. Cooperation in the sense of that you need to deal with things to go through them. So... You know, I just mentioned all these deals between heroes and villains, but also think about cooperation in the sense of you have teams of two going out with mortar launchers to take down the machine's drillers, I guess you'd call them, like terraforming devices. You know, you have that thing with Z and other lady whose name I did not, I do not remember, where she's like, I'll keep shooting. Chara. 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 Thank you. She's like, I'll keep shooting if you keep loading, that type of thing. And... The whole movie is predicated on deals, on cooperation, and that's why I think this movie is so much about humanity. Not only in the sense that we're jumping around from so many characters and seeing all the cogs in the machine of humanity, but we're also realizing that it's like, yeah, when you don't have currency, when you don't have this stupid, weird piece of paper called the American dollar, or the euro, I guess, to bind people together, well, what's left? It's survival, and it's deal-making. It's trades. It's bartering. And that's what this movie is about. This movie is about humanity on its last fucking legs. They have nothing that's been manufactured anymore. And so all that's left is for them to work together or work with the bad guys in hope of a better outcome. I love the idea that the end of this movie really comes down to, well, we had to make a deal. And that's the end of this movie. When the architect and the oracle talk in the new iteration of the Matrix, the seventh, I think we said, and, you know, the, the oracle, uh, sorry, the architect says, you played a dangerous game, but you made a different outcome. And the oracle goes, yeah, and I hope that, you know, anybody who doesn't want to be in here doesn't have to be in here. They're setting up a new choice for the Matrix. And I love that there are deals and cooperation throughout this whole movie because whether it be good, bad, villainous, uh, heroic, any type of thing, you gotta trade with people to get things done. I don't know that. 
Every, all three of these movies have such a different take on a moral standpoint that is just so fascinating to me, Zach. I don't know. Did you get this whole cooperation slash deal thing, or does it make sense that I'm uh, explaining that? I did not uh, pick up on that, but I definitely get it. It's an interesting undertone to it all. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact – I don't know. I, I, Deal-making. I, I guess. I love to know if that was their intent because it, it's there. I just wonder if they would see under that specific like it, guise. It, exactly. That that's one of the things I would love to talk to the Wachowskis. Just period, you know, full stop. I would also love to talk to the Wachowskis about our thoughts on these movies cuz like I said I, I think the first movie is about perspective. I think the second movie is about choice. Once you know who you are and are making sure that people see you the way you are, so the end of the first movie, and once you are confident in the choices you're making, isn't everything left how you deal with other people? And that comes down to dealing with them, to cooperating with them. I think this this movie, as much as it is saying that, you know, they're subverting the hero's journey and reiterating the, the stories and narratives we've heard from movies before, I think it's more about the growth of a human. It's almost like Neo starts as an infant in the first movie realizes his perspective of himself and others. He then realizes the choices he needs to make to stay true to that perspective. And then he needs to realize that there are outside sources of dealing with other people that might compromise that perspective, but needs to be done for the greater good. I don't know. It's kind of, I, I'm, honestly, Zach, I'm going to say it because you know me. I'm not a big religious person. These movies might as well be the Bible teaching you how to, how to live your life. These are so pure ideas of just like, Know who you are, know who others are, and deal with that accordingly. It's so fucking cool. <laughs> ben wants to reschedule. We were supposed to record tomorrow morning. He wants to reschedule. That's what he was calling me about. So I'm glad I didn't pick up. <laughs> that would have been boring. <laughs> Goddamn, Ben. Um, again, it, it, it'd be great if this was there on anything even – oh, God, like – Oh, God. Like, what are the different layers to the skin? Like, you have, like, the epidermis. You have all okay, this. Okay, okay, okay. You're right. You're like, right. this is, like, the fourth or fifth level down. And I, I really I, – I want to cut you off because I think you've, you've made your point. These, these movies are probably bad on a surface-telling story level. But here's the thing. Isn't there some level of gratitude that you have, that we have? Clearly I do, but I want to ask you, Zach. Gratitude for these movies because once they are thought about so deeply, they start to make – I don't know, sense on a moral level. It's not like I'm watching a story anymore when I think about the Matrix movies these days. It's like I'm actually, like I said, that's why I relate it to the Bible. I'm looking at like a code to live by. That's how important I think these movies are. Do you agree? Do you understand? Or do you think I'm totally off base with that? I understand what you're getting at. Okay. Um, it's just the problem is that like it's just, it takes too much time and effort for for any film yes. like yeah. again like these are not like oh god uh art films these are not films that are that should be as dense as they are no and like, and there's I some think... great ideas but they, they need to be refined so they're at least, yeah. again it's like it's like having a beautiful garden but it's like four or five levels down yes and i think um, the best way to say that is like the the matrix trilogy as it exists now is maybe six and a half hours of total screen time there's a reason that our episodes are going to at least double that, right? <laughs> oh God, we're, we're what? One's gonna be seven hours long. Um, we might, we might, we might one point five multiply it. Maybe not double to get the twelve hours, but we have a one point yeah. five. <laughs> no, but I, I think you know what I'm saying, Zach, is that like once I've put the time. Well, one, the movies hooked me. 
and they made me care about them, made me want to put the research in, that type of thing. And that's something inherent to the movie. Probably to me as well, wanting to research and learn more things, but really the movie hooked me in that way. Whereas, like, you know, Lord of the Rings and Marvel did not, and The Hobbit or any of those franchise movies. I, I think there is something special for a class of movies, we should maybe give them a highlight on cinemodities, movies that are so difficult to understand, but when you actually put the work in to understand them, they are wildly satisfying. And I think the Matrix trilogy falls into that category, as a Southland Tales or an Under the Silver Lake does, and probably other movies that I haven't given full thought to. I have to admit that as well, for sure. You're not wrong. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) No, okay, so, Zach, I I mean, I think... um, in terms of themes and stuff like that, my, my notion of cooperation, um, things of that notion, I think that was all the big themes I had. I, I got to ask you. I'm, I'm sorry because I'm talking so goddamn much, Zach. Um, I'm, I'm really not sorry, but Zach knows what I mean. Any moments from um, Matrix Revolutions you, want, you wanted to highlight? Like you said, you know, last two weeks that this was your favorite one. Um, uh, really, what did you want to talk about? That type of thing. Because I will interject accordingly, because I think I have a note for every scene of this movie. <laughs> of course you do, Rob. Of course you do. Um, no, I like I said, a lot of this movie is fun. I forgot how really nothing, like, uh, spectacle-wise, of value happens in the first hour. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I probably... The, the thing I enjoyed the most from this uh, go-around is probably the train man. I wish we'd gotten just a little bit more of him because he only gets really one moment and that's his like chase through the train station where we see him like waiting to like jump across like a platform. Yes, yeah. I kind of uh, loved the fact that I was – when I was rewatching Revolutions, um, I was trying to put out of my brain – it's like, yeah, I, I know who the train man is. He was even in some of the cutscenes from Enter the Matrix. Oh, yes. I, I was really kind of thinking, how cool would it be to watch this movie with no knowledge of the train man? Because I'm pretty sure, like, one of his first instances of appearing on screen is Morpheus, Trinity, and Seraph chasing him. And it kind of comes across that they're chasing a random homeless man. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was, the like, the thought, like, back in 2003. It was like, yeah, what's yeah. going on? Yeah, because in Enter the Matrix, the train man just appears and says to Niobe, it's 72 hours. That's how long Zion lasted last time. So you know that he has some bigger notions. But in this movie, when they're chasing him through the trains, uh, the subway stations, it's just like, are they chasing a homeless man? Like, are they just doing this willy-nilly type but of this thing? Is, but, this is, but this is the thing, though, that like just like frustrates me on like, how this film is edited. Because... You have okay, so you you have Neo in the train station, obviously. Yes. And then we have like they get the phone call saying that like oh Seraph, and it's like oh he says something and it's very cryptic. And then we have the, like Seraph driving the car with Morpheus and Trinity in it, and it's like oh like, I know where he is, but like we have to get like we have to like get to the train man before he gets away, and it's like what. And then, like, we cut to them, like, chasing him through, like, like he's, like, sitting, like, on a train. Yep. Like, a yep. subway, like, train. He's literally, he's, like, a homeless person in that yes. first scene. Absolutely. <laughs> and, like, they chase him. He has, like, a pocket revolver that has, like, 15 shots in it. You know, can we hold six? But whatever. <laughs> well, and, he's also has 17,000 wristwatches on. Some of those have bullets in him, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you have that, and, like, he escapes... And then, like, we cut back to the Mobile Avenue train station where we have, like, oh, like, the tr- it's like, when's your train coming? It's late. It's not usual for the train man to be late. Yes. And then we see him, like, 
punch like, like like neo tries to get on by like trying to like pretend he's like a baggage porter and like he's like you're not supposed to be here like bruce spence does a fabulous job like he is easily probably the best standalone character in these movies and oh, like yeah. he does the he does the most with, with limited screen time he has because he's he's and, chewing it up he's he's like a, a, a oh, yeah. character we finally he's, seen who's not emotionally reserved yes yes <laughs> he's, he's not being stoic because the wachowskis is like beat him to death yeah yeah who are you he is a friend Mama. i know you so that's what they wanted I need to get back. I'll pay you whatever you want. Oh. One way or another, I'm getting on this train. Oh, no, 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 no. You're gonna stay right here until the Merovingian says different. If I know him, you're gonna be here for a long, long time. I don't want to hurt you. You don't get it. I built this place. Down here, I make the rules. Down here, I make the threats. So no, and then like we have him like punch Neo, and he's like down here. I'm God, and it's like great, like this is neat. I want this. The problem is, is that like the sequence should have been like re-edited, where instead of like oh god, it begins with like Seraph and Trinity and Morpheus going after him. We should have had them like in the car, being like oh we should have gotten him before this. Then we sit there like have the moment of like. Like, where's the train man? Like, it's unusual for the train man to be late. We should have had that moment first. So you establish this idea of, like, oh, the guy that's holding Neo hostage is, like, oh, God, this power beyond anything we've ever, like, really encountered in the Matrix that wasn't an agent. Sure, sure. Because even with, like, everything we've seen, like, all these other agents, uh, pardon the pun, of the Merovingian, we've dispatched them all. Like, that's the problem with, like, the Merovingian, all of his, like, cronies, is that in Reloaded, every single one of them is destroyed. Yeah, um, implicitly and or explicitly, sure. Well, yeah, like, you have the twins. Well, the twins, we see the twins. We see the twins blow up in a car explosion, but they turn ghost as that explosion happens. They might not be dead. We don't see them ever again. That is true. They are that is true. Not only in the movies, we don't see them in the Matrix Online either. So they you're just, right, Zach. That's the problem. Is that like the, every one of the Merovingians' agents are thwarted? So like the problem, the thing with the train man that makes him so unique is a he's not defeated, and b it's like oh we see him like literally like knock Neo to like the ground. Yep, so yep. Because because he's the um the imperator of the uh, of the train station, so he's stronger than the one. Because Limbo is not the Matrix, and like I said before, Neo is in Limbo. Well, Thomas Anderson and his RSI, his residual self image, is in Limbo while not jacked into the Matrix. So he should not have Neo powers because in Limbo you are not Wi-Fi connected to the source. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh God! Um, but that's the thing, though. It's like we should have been established to him, like beating up Neo. Then we get the Morpheus, Seraph, and Trinity fight, where like it adds a stake. Like, oh, who? Like, oh God! Like, this is the guy they have to deal with. He just beat up Neo. This is gonna be impossible. 
And that's yeah. like you build yeah. up the stakes of the situation. And then you just have him, but instead he's just a homeless guy who just runs away and then beats up Neo. And it's like, okay. So uh, do you think that the train man character would have been um, maybe not better expressed, but better used if he had an appearance in the second movie? Do you think that the detriment to the train man character being so reserved is because they restrict him to just this, um, you know, uh, security <sighs> guard of Jabba's it's, palace it's, at the beginning of the third movie? <sighs> <laughs> what's the what's the pig he's the pig face people gamorian guard gamorian <laughs> guards okay thank you zach i never would have or who's the tentacle dude from java's palace the squid face no 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 zach i would have known squid face the dude with the tentacle that wraps around his neck he's like oh job oh, bid fortuna maybe <laughs> you get shot by boba fett yeah, Mate, oh yeah yeah in the, in the in the mandalorian yeah yeah bib fortuna okay that's probably correct is isn't he more like that where Merovingian is the Jabba type of thing? No, the, the Merovingian is this... Again, the Merovingian is an interesting character that we never... Like, he's an interesting pa- character on paper. Oh, sure. We never see him actually do anything. Well, we That's see him problem. make an orgasm he's, cake, I he, mean... Well, okay, yes. Orgasm you can't cake deny that, the, Zach. <laughs> orgasm cake being the greatest thing to ever exist in the history of the Cinematis restaurant. If you listed the Merovingian and said he hasn't done anything, many people he would come back and go, cake. no, he makes an orgasm cake. <laughs> and he then gets a blowjob from that woman in the restroom. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, orgasm cake. Um... <laughs> That's the thing. What, I'm trying to think. Would the Trey Man would have been better served as a character if he showed up in part two? Probably. Okay. Um, I don't know where you would have inserted him. I think he would have been a fun character maybe like in the highway sequence, but he's out of place there. You know You um, know what I actually want to put forward as a as – a, uh, it's not a fix because I think this, tri- this trilogy is perfect. But if I was making this, I have a correction to the Trey Man. And you just said where would you put him? My thought is – you put the train man in the second movie somewhere in the back halls or in the Merovingian's palace dealing with the Keymaker. That somehow he is like a protector of the Keymaker rather than just goons of the Merovingian. You know what I mean? But the problem is the train man is the guardian of Limbo. And there's no room yeah. for there, there is no Limbo in part two outside of the very, okay. very But this is but this is where you need like you need to strike in very they should have taken I, this is the thing about the matrix too mm-hmm. as in reloaded i mean when i say matrix too, yeah the movie we discussed a week ago absolutely yes yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> is that like there are certain things in that film that should have been stripped out like we don't need another like burly brawl in like the hallway of like never-ending doors that should have been something else. And I, I don't think that's agree with that by... in the slightest because that reveals that Smith is able to access those back doors. That's very important. He can, but, like, it serves no purpose. <sighs> okay, Zach. On a narrative level, for people who are not me, you're right. It serves no purpose. But for the context of the third movie, it explains why he is able to assimilate everybody so quickly because he has access to the back doors. But this is, but this is the point. My problem, though, is that, like... We're told that Smith is doing something that has never been done in any iteration of the Matrix. Yeah, total aberration. Absolutely. Then we should have seen him, like, start to infect people of the Merovingian stature. Like, if we if, – if, if instead of having Trinity put a gun at his head and been, like uh, – I, I know – I again, we both agree. The line of we don't have time for this shit <laughs> yeah. puts a gun to his head is great. Like, it's a great moment. It's funny as hell. I have told you before, there is no escaping the nature of the universe. 
It is that nature that has again brought you to me. Where some see coincidence, I see consequence. Where others see chance, I see cost. Bring me the eyes of the oracle. And I will give you back your savior. It seems a perfectly fair and reasonable deal to me. Yes? No? I don't have time for this shit. If that sequence would have been broken up with Smith showing up, like, like, what if something happened that, like, like the Merovingian's, like, on his, like, high horse, and he's like, my train man, blah, 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 has access to Neo with, like, a, a flip of a switch. And then, like, a bunch of Smiths show up, and the train man goes, oh, God, the Merovingian who has been insulated from this for how many generations was able to get corrupted, I have to let this guy out now. Like, that's the thing. Mm. Like, you need, like, that's what you need. So everything, instead of having the Merovingian, I'm sorry, have the train man, like, go oh God, come to like salacious crumb levels or just like in that sequence going, oh, <laughs> like you should have had that where you give it dramatic stakes where it's like, okay, Smith shows up and he's just like, just going through the crowd and the train man goes, okay, I have, it's not like I want to give Neo back to these people. I have to give him back because he's the only like semblance of hope we have. Okay. If the Merovingian yeah. can't survive this, what hope do any of us have? That's okay. That's an interesting, interesting take. I think it is, oh God, there's so much to unpack here, Zach. I think it is purposeful that they never have any interaction between Smith and the Merovingian because I think I mentioned this briefly last week, but I really want to dive into it more here. The Merovingian is the proto-oracle. So in in all of my notions about like what these different programs mean to the Matrix, the oracle is this very special thing we've been talking about. I think that this third movie, with the way the Merovingian and the Oracle talk both separately and about each other, I think that they are both operating systems. I think that they are both ways to connect programs together, which in essence is what an operating system does, lets a user, you know, connect these things together. Um, I, I would not be able to record this podcast and talk to Zach on Skype, even though Skype sucks and wants us our audio to bust out every five minutes or things like that. I would not be able to do that if it wasn't for an operating system. So I, I think there is some notion there. At the same time, to get at what you were saying, Zach, the Smith notion, uh, I know what you're saying. That might just be the thesis I, of these my, episodes. My I know biggest, what you're saying. My <laughs> biggest problem is, is that the threat of Smith to the machines is not established at all until the very end. And that's the problem. Mm. Like we never see a point where the Matrix – we never get a point where the machines, a.k.a. the Matrix, feels overwhelmed by Smith. We are never. never told that until an explicit line of dialogue from Neo at like the hour 35 minute mark. So, yeah, you're right. Is that when Neo said, I think you're thinking of when Neo says, um, Agent, the, the Smith program has grown beyond your control and is, you know, taking over the Matrix. And, and that's the thing, though. It's like when Deus Ex Machina, greatest character name ever, <laughs> yep. says, We don't need your help. I'm like, Yes, because we've not been shown any reason why the machines would need your help. 
Um, and I don't know if there's deleted footage from this somewhere that maybe. Well, I don't. Like, I don't think it's deleted footage. I think it is obfuscated oracle dialogue from the beginning of the movie. Because after Neo is saved from Limbo, uh, sorry, Mobile Avenue, he goes to see the the Oracle, and the Oracle now played by uh, Mary Alice. You know, she her shell has changed because of her. The the Merovingian deleting her shell codes because he traded Sati's existence for the Oracle shell codes. It's, I might be saying this in a very, you know, disgusted and drawn out way, but it's really fucking cool, I swear. Um, but she, the Oracle says to Neo the thing about how it's like, I've made choices that I need to make and I can't see past them. She has that whole monologue in her kitchen where she's like, programs have different goals than humans because programs are created based on their parameters but humans at the same time they have parameters based on their system of belief and like i talked about last week that when you include more and more parameters as the number of parameters you put into a computer program approaches infinity it more and more replicates the human existence because that's what we know human existence as but the oracle says to neo in that monologue in like what the 30 minute mark of this movie or something is that she's like you know these programs make choices. They make choices in such a way that might not make sense to humans because they are set by different parameters of creation. The only program that is matching you, Neo, the reason you're different, is Smith. Because Smith has become so complicated that we, we can't follow him anymore. And it's why the Oracle lets Smith assimilate her, that type of thing. But I think at the essence of that beginning part of the movie, I think everything is purely spelled out the only thing that is not spelled out is the true detail of how it's going to relate later in the movie once again it's obfuscation it's it's you probably said it best zach the wachowskis have difficulty conveying a straight and narrow story (laughs) i don't again i think i don't think it's that issue I think, like, it's the idea of, like, you have a track that is very, like, from point A to B, like, 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. The problem is that they've laid down all these, like, artificial, like, oh, God, like, superficial, like, other diversions. Um, You just have to clear a lot of the nonsense away, and the foundation is there. But those diversions show the humanity of the story we're telling. That's what I was saying before, that the first two movies are so focused on individuals. When we start diverging in this third movie so rapidly as we do, the Wachowskis are telling us we need to stop caring about characters. We need to care about humanity as a whole now. Yes. Yes. But it's... Because honestly, tell me, is there any... Is there any notion of any character in this movie that plays to an individual rather than the whole of humanity? There's one that I can think of. But for the most part, every single character in this movie is making actions based on making humanity survive. This is a very selfless movie, I guess is what but I'm saying. It's it's selfless in one regard, but like for dumb reasons. Like, okay. You just had the ending of the second film with the architect say basically, okay, Neo, the one typically loves humanity more more than one individual, but yes. you're different because you love one over over like it, it's not oh god, what's the spot quote? Um the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yes. Um, and you, you now, are, and the architect says you now have a choice based on that yes, that aberration. Yes, yes. Yes. And then like pretty much like Morpheus 
doesn't ever have to sacrifice himself. Niobe doesn't have to sacrifice herself. Link doesn't. Link pretty much has nothing to do in this entire well, movie. Well, Link's Harold Perrineau is just great fun. Period. Yeah, um, no, he's fun, but like he Morpheus, has nothing to do. Morpheus has to sacrifice Mor- his sense of self. Trinity has no, to sacrifice no, herself. Morph- no, 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 not at all. When it comes to our three protagonists, mm-hmm. Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus, for forty mi- for God for forty minutes of the movie, Neo and Trinity don't even matter. During the essentially the climax, well, they don't matter in the sense that they are working as a team with the crew of the Hammer to one rescue Niobian Ghost and then two rescue. But, the, but, but that's the should, point. It's the sword. humanity. No one character should have agency until Neo at the very end, because all of these characters should be working in unison for humanity. Well, yeah, that's every movie. <laughs> no, that's every movie no that is not every movie. And even that's if you said, yeah, like, you know, Kevin Flynn. <laughs> that's every movie with a clear sense of good and bad, Rob. That's not specific to this. Did the that's... Matrix create the perfect system? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my thing, though, is that, like, during that moment from the 56-minute mark to, like, the hour and 22-minute mark. Yes, the, the non-neo part of the movie. Yes. When, when we have the boom-boom explosions part of the movie, we should be cutting back and forth to what's happening with Neo and Trinity is they're trying to, like, get over the clouds. Here's my thing. And you have, this, and you have the Matrix, like, defense. Here's my thing. I completely disagree. These two Clearly. arcs need to be so separate. We don't need cutting back to Neo in that 30 minutes of the war for Zion because we need to be focused on the human's last stand. All of these humans in the real world of Zion, they're not Morpheus. They don't believe in the prophecy that Morpheus believes in. So they have to fight against the machines. They have to rely. It's the whole second movie's thing with uh, Counselor Haman, you know, where he's talking about how we rely on machines and we control them. And Neo says, well, is it? Well, Neo says we control them. Counselor Haman says, is control just the ability to destroy them? That's what the. That 30-minute action sequence of Revolutions is. It's the payoff to the Zion bureaucracy going, if if we're under attack, we have to fight. It doesn't matter what's going on in a simulated, sorry, simulacrumed world. It matters what we do here and now. It's the human condition of needing to respond when response might not be appropriate. That's the whole thing with the, with the bear, with the, the dog. They lose the dog. Like you said before, they blast the hammer busts in. They blast off the EMP. The ship is not actually called the hammer; it's called the Mjolnir. But of course, I think uh, <laughs> the Wachowskis knew before uh, before Thor. Nobody could pronounce Mjolnir, so they called it the hammer. But the hammer busts in. They activate the EMP. It seems like a big victory. We know there's an hour left in the movie, or 50 minutes, whatever it is. And it cuts to like you said, Harry Lennox as Commander Locke going. You just gave him the dock on a silver platter. That's that's the essence right there the essence of well we as humans can't put all of our chips on neo because of a prophecy or because of what morpheus says we have to fight the fight we can fight and that's the whole battle for zion that's the kid kicking the uh the ammunition back into the chamber for captain mifune mifune dying and and saying he never completed the training program to the kid that type of thing it's all about the persistence of the will to live and the moment in the movie that works is the battle for zion because machines don't have that will the movie is hard focusing on 
the persistence of survival that a organic natural creature has that a machine will never have. No matter how much parameters of creation you give it, like we talked about in the Animatrix segments from two weeks ago, talked about prelude to this, you can't give a human enough, you can't give a machine enough parameters to make it human. It can only mimic humanity. And the thing that machines can't mimic is this will to survive. I love it. (laughs) Congratulations, Rob. You just described the plot of the Terminator franchise. Yeah. I kind of thought about that, too, when I was doing my notes, Zach, but you're right. (laughs) That is the plot of the Terminator franchise. You're not wrong. I feel like there's been a lot of there's a lot of this series of you and me saying to each other, you're not wrong. You know, that type of thing. Like I said, Rob, I'm happy for you, but uh, I, I'm glad you're able to appreciate this as much as you you do. Um, but I just think like this is just like this is like oh god, so many layers is like again the foundation is there. I just think at any point they go vertical on the structure, it's just like. <laughs> Paperclip and chewing gum level. Fair, fair. Were there any moments in the War for Zion, the spectacle scenes that we've been talking about, any moments you wanted to highlight in there? Because uh, I, I think I'm ready to go on to the Neo ending and stuff like that, whatever minor details we haven't talked no, about. Like, I, no, like I said, like, all the spectacle in this, I, I ate up. Like, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, no, like, like I loved everything with the hammer. That sequence is great. Uh, yeah, it, like we talked about even, great flying scenes and i love the moment when um zion is not sure about what ship is coming towards them and you know we have the the harry lennox and stuff going like it can't be one of ours that's impossible and then it's like it's the hammer they have to come through and it's like oh shit like what can we do to open the doors i that's another thing about the humanity of this movie i love during that 30 minutes of the war for zion I love all those little character moments. I love the kid trying to kick the ammunition thing back into Mifune's uh, APU or whatever it's called. I love Mifune dying, the kid taking over to open the door, that type of stuff. It's it's all humanistic, and I love that stuff. Whereas in a Marvel movie, to use that comparison, it's it's literally CGI vomit spectacle. Where at least in the Matrix Revolutions, I know which character is doing what thing and what their goal is. Where in the Marvel movies, it's like, oh, I uh, okay, two seconds, I see Don Cheadle shoot a laser. And then two more seconds, I see Falcon shoot a laser. And then two more seconds, I see Spider-Man shoot a web. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? At least there's some coherence to this Battle of Zion. I don't know, did you get that, Zach? No, it, no, it's coherent. Um, no, like I said, the foundation is there. I, I think so, coherence of an action scene gives it a huge bump up for me. Because I've seen so many action scenes and spectacle scenes that I can't understand the orientation of. I am fine with the battle for Zion, the war for Zion. No, I, I don't disagree at all. But no, going back to why, like, um, like, that's the thing, though, is... Uh, no, like I said, no. I, the APC fight with the Sentinels is fun. Watching, uh, oh god, uh, Link's wife and Chara. I remember. I don't know why I remember Chara. Z, Z and Chara. Z, yeah. Z and Chara. And you remember Chara? Watching. I remember Z. Together, we're a full person. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> Together, uh, no. we understand the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. Um, no, that was, that was, no, like I said, that was fun watching. I know that sequence is a lot of fun. I have nothing against that. That's like, like, 
it's a lot of me, even Mofuni, who we really haven't seen as a character. Like, he's of, in the second film. Yeah, he's in the second movie very briefly. Of course, the kid is, is in the second movie as well. Jesus Christ, Zach, wait, wait till we get to the Matrix MMO. The kid is a huge part of that that I want to talk about. But I have a question for you, Zach. I'm, I'm, I kind of wanted to ask this question maybe 15, 20 minutes ago, but I was, I was a little hesitant, but I think I should go for it. Like we said, I did not listen to the uh, carte blanche episode about the Matrix <laughs> Revolutions. I, I did listen to, like I said last week, I scrubbed through their reloaded episode, um, had some points to make on that. I, I did not listen to Revolutions. Can I make a guess? And I want you, since you have said you've listened to this episode, can I make a guess? Did griffin and david of carte blanche make the most basic point that everybody on the face of the planet has made about the matrix revolutions zach did at any point either of the hosts of carte blanche say take out mafune and put in morpheus did that happen oh oh 100 percent. fucking i hate this narrative i've been reading this for years <laughs> this is the fucking stupid shit that everybody says you go on any forum you go on fucking like game facts forums which have nothing to do with movies and you'll see people going like oh who the fuck is mafune should have put morpheus in an apu and had him fight the machines in this anime style no 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 morpheus is the whole arc is that he's sidelined for this movie to get the realization at the end the, he he is a back yard character to Niobe or a secondary gunner or secondary he's like Chewbacca to you know Niobe's Harrison Ford uh, Han Solo in this movie for good reason at the end of the previous movie Neo tells him the oracle lied to us your prophecy means nothing he is totally despondent and he should be despondent by saying Morpheus we need your help to get back to Zion he's gonna go okay because I got nothing fucking else to live for I hate the idea that people want Morpheus in a fucking mech suit fighting the machines at the end. That is the stupidest thing to me. What do you think, Zach? Uh, no, you're you're correct. Um, I wouldn't. I I would have given Morpheus something else to do. Um, the problem Morpheus is, needs to be sidelined because he is the only thing reattaching us to the prophecy of the beginning. You know, it's like imagine if the last two Harry three Harry Potter movies became about the whole ordeal in the books that like Neville was supposed to be the chosen one. I I know my mother's told me this a million times, but like, like Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter was supposed to die and Neville was supposed to be the chosen one who was going to defeat Voldemort, but that didn't happen. This is the same fucking thing. Like Morpheus has faith, breaks rules to achieve that faith, loses his faith and regains it. How would Morpheus's faith be regained Wait, by fighting the machines? Pro- the problem is that I don't think it's. I, I don't. Again, I don't think it's okay. Morpheus to... has to be removed from the war for Zion to no, make his character okay. at all relevant. Okay, I think the thing is that we never see Morpheus lose faith. Like he's not given any screen time to see him lose faith. Always see him. He has one like what two lines of dialogue with the Oracle, and that's it. Very beginning of the him. third movie is when he might start to lose faith. Very beginning for one line. You're right, but it's very like it's not there, and it's not not much time is given to it because we're too busy spending time doing other things. And I think you might have had that. Like I said, I don't agree with having him in a mech suit, but I think maybe having him somewhere else other than just like ride shotgun. Like I said, I think the I think both of these movies 
like the foundations is there, but you have to do a complete like oh god, like redo on almost every level. Because I think he, Morpheus Morpheus doesn't really have anything to do in the second and third movie, and he He's shouldn't kind of just, have anything to do. God. Like the whole the whole point of Morpheus in the third movie is to support Niobe. And Niobe is set up in the Enter the Matrix video game that she's gonna have to make the choice to support Neo or not. And she does, she gives him the logos. Morpheus has to then be sidelined. Because Morpheus is the impetus of a prophecy. Morpheus not is not a cog in the prophecy, he's the impetus. There's a very big difference, is that Morpheus made the choices to start this this machine going. When I say machine, I mean the the uh, you know the the chain of events, the Rube Goldberg machine that creates the path of the One in this iteration of the Matrix. You can't have him doing anything else. That is his purpose. As much as humans are not programs, the Matrix movies still treat all of our humans as specific programs. Whether it be Cipher as the dilemma, whether it be Morpheus as the prophet, whether it be you know Trinity as the lube for the profit type of thing like you can't have him doing that much he needs to be sidelined in this third movie because he is waiting to see if the choices he's made pay off you know what i mean <laughs> sure um I, I don't think we don't he's never given the breathing room though for us to really kind of appreciate that dilemma then well I, I would also want to highlight the end of the second movie when Neo says to him, the Oracle lied to us. The Oracle has made me the one in essence as an anomaly to fit the program. So the prophecy is not true. You were just, you know, led to the prophecy because that's what the Matrix wanted you to do. I think his arc ends in the second movie and that he's irrelevant for the first two thirds of the third movie until he realizes that his ch choice to break protocol in the first movie was important. <laughs> I now also realize that no one is following what I'm saying. <laughs> I I think I made my point loud and clear. Okay, yeah, you you have you have you. So um, I'm sure that'll come up later again. But um, you know, here here's a moment, Zach. How about this? How about how about let's ground ourselves from from Rob's crazy nonsense about the Matrix? There's a scene we have to talk about. There's a scene that I'm sure blank check. Oh, sorry, carte blanche talked about. Uh, I, I'm a, it's a scene that's been talked about on the internet to death. I need to know your thoughts, Zach. When Niobe, uh, sorry, when Trinity and Neo break through the human pollution and see the sun, and Trinity says it's beautiful. What do you think about that scene? It, it's very out of place. So, I agree with you. My next question is, what did Carte Blanche think of this scene, if they brought it up in their episode? I would love to get that feedback from you as well. God, they, they do bring it up very briefly. They call it, um, oh God, what, what do they say? Oh, they say, it's Griffin says it's a Renaissance painting, and then that's kind of it. Oh, so the, like the shot of the sun? Yes. Yeah, oh. he's like he's like he's like they break through the clouds. It's a Renaissance painting, and they, they go back to the dark place. Do they like it? Do they dislike it? Do you have any? Uh, they don't really give any strong opinion on it one way oh. or the other. Okay, that that's really interesting because from what I researched and my own belief is that this is one of the most important scenes in the movie. <laughs> Just before I give you my thoughts on it, Zach, what do you think? Just on, on your level, like when when they when they have to go above the machines, because as we talked about two weeks ago. The reason that there is no sun in the sky is because the humans polluted the sky to block out solar energy. 
Um, and in the Matrix Revolutions, Neo and Trinity in the Logos have to go above a swarm of machines. So they go above the pollution. They see the sun for a quick moment. It cuts to Trinity, who goes, beautiful. And then the movie kind of continues. think of that scene i i mean remove your your carte blanche um you know infection i feel like zach you are the agent smith where you're like blank check has infested my brain you know that type of thing remove that what do you think what do you think about that scene in general zach i really wanted to get your thought on that oh it's 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 a unique moment but it's kind of it's fine i guess is what i'm saying because it's fine that's what I always hear. I always hear, like, people going, like, this is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen, or people who agree with me going, no, this is actually a meaningful moment. <laughs> it's fine. I, um, I get it. It's meant to be fleeting, but, uh, it's well, fine. Well, that, that's where I kind of disagree. I don't think it's meant to be fleeting. So hear me out. Hear me out, Zach. I, I think that the, um... The viewing of the sun in Matrix Revolutions might be the most important scene in all three of the movies. So, hear me out. As we watch these movies, we are people that are just fixated to planet Earth. You know, back in 1999, back in 2003, whether it be in the last few months, uh, weeks, days, whatever, when we watch these uh, these movies... The whole window of cinema guides you into going, this is the real world. This is humans versus machines they've created. We are dealing with things on the planet Earth. I kind of fucking love the moment when the Logos goes above the polluted skyline and sees the sun. Because it is not just a reminder to Trinity and to Neo. Well, not really Neo because he can't see anything. To, it's not really just a reminder to Trinity of how beautiful the world can be. I think this is a reminder to the audience that the entirety of the story is taking place on Earth. Zach, yeah. what would you think about a Matrix 4 or Matrix 5 or whatever, you know, that type of thing, any Matrix movie where aliens came to Earth viewed what we have done, and said, oh, fuck no, and left. Like an outside perspective on the Matrix Earth that we know. I, I think that this scene of, of seeing the sun, I don't think it's just because, oh, they need to see the sun because they're human. I think it is the Wachowskis reminding us that all of this grand story has taken place on Earth. The rest of the universe has continued we blacked out the sun with Project Destruction or whatever it was called. We have been enslaved. Humans have been enslaved by machines for a source of energy, putting them this this restricted reiteration of the Matrix, that type of thing. But this is all on Earth. There's many planets and many stars going on without this. And that's what I see that moment to be. That moment is not going, oh, wow, this is what Earth should be. It's the remembrance of our audience or the reminder to our audience going, no, Earth is a small fucking rock in the giant planet of all the grand scheme of things, and that's how unimportant this shit is. What did you think about that, that seeing the sun and saying beautiful scene? Um, I agree. It's supposed to be a uh, 
uh, pardon the pun, down to earth moment <laughs> where it's supposed to be like a realization. It's supposed to remind the audience like, oh, this is Earth. This isn't some like far off planet in a distant world. Yeah. This is yeah. not just the window of cinema. It's the window of cinema into the entire galaxy type of thing. It's it's a it's a great kind of like, you know, the the back of the box is open too type of moment, you know? Mm-hmm. I love it. I don't, I don't, I don't I, I didn't I wasn't you saying anything. I, I didn't cut out. I just wanted to know if you had more thoughts. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think it's there to remind the audience that we're on Earth. Um, something that should have been done like a movie and a half ago. Uh, <laughs> no, it should have been done right now, right where it is, because that's great. It should have been done more. Uh, little... But let me let me ask you, because you have this knowledge, carte blanche. Um, did they? I'm assuming they hated this. No, I told you they said it was like a Renaissance painting, and they kind of left it at that. Well, they said it's like a Renaissance painting, but in terms of the movie, like did they? I don't. They didn't. They didn't really focus on it. Much. Oh, okay. they, they also only do. They did less than two hours on this. Rob. That's the other thing. Is it, yeah, I mean, uh, our our episodes on the Matrix will engulf their episodes on the Matrix three times over, I think, or something like that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I wanted to mention that moment. I think it's a beautiful depiction of how, you know, this is not, like, Earth that we've been focusing on is not the only thing in the universe that's very important. Um, I think, as I'm looking through my notes, I know we're jumping all over the place type of thing. Um, we didn't really talk about Bane. <laughs> I know, it's kind of amazing, because that's one of the most important parts of this movie. Yeah, so so I'm sorry to the audience, uh, but if if you're... If the cinema audience has been listening to our previous two episodes, they they're kind of know it's like I'm not going to get the whole picture, so I listen to all 17 hours of cinemodities about the Matrix. But Bane, okay, here's my thing. I have a big question for you. Do you think Bane, played by Ian Bliss, uh, the Australian actor Ian Bliss, do you think he is doing a good Hugo Weaving impression when he is playing Bane in the real world fighting Neo as Smith? real world type of thing you know what i mean oh 100 percent. do you think he's doing a good job as a as a um as a hugo weaving impressionist in those scenes yeah no 100 percent. a couple times like you Hasn't watch it him, been? okay really, okay like, real quick i'm sorry between him and uh hugo weaving really starts to like just blur there's not much to say because the groundwork is laid that's one of the very few times the groundwork is properly laid and reloaded maybe should have been a little more blatant just to kind of remove any sort of ambiguity in the final shot of reloaded Okay, but no, I think uh, everything in this makes perfect sense between when he stabs a uh, uh, short-haired nor- nurse, and then all the way to the moment where like everybody on the hammer realizes what's going on. No, oh. I think uh, I think I think Bane's character is great. I think like, everything about that I think uh, works. So there was a um, I hate to say it, Zach, but there is an IMDb trivia fact I would like to reference right now. <laughs> this IMDb trivia fact says that Ian Bliss who plays Bane in both Reloaded and Revolutions, was cast because he slightly looks like Hugo Weaving, but then the IMDb trivia fact goes on to say that he does a dead-on impression of Hugo Weaving. I could not disagree more. I hated Ian Bliss doing his Agent Smith in the real-world aspects of Revolutions. What do you think? Uh, it boils down to a matter of preference, but I think it, for what the, clearly they're going for, it works. Well, well, that that brings me to a question. Um, when when Agent Smith goes from Matrix to real world, should we put his real world embodiment in something so similar to Hugo Weaving? Counter question or parallel question: 
just because Gloria Foster dies, who is, she's an elderly black lady, that's just who she is, is it appropriate for them to cast a different elderly black lady for the Oracle? Wouldn't it be interesting if they just change their actors completely? Like, Smith in the real world becomes, I don't know, like a, a different person. And the Oracle in the new world becomes a completely different person. Like, it seems like when you do Gloria Foster to Mary Alice, you're looking for very similar looks, very similar visuals. Whereas in when you're going from Hugo Weaving in Matrix World to Ian Bliss in Real World, you're doing the same thing. You're talking about, like, who can do the best impression and who looks similar, most similar to that actor. I think The Matrix lends itself to something better than that, in that when a shell is deleted or changed, it can be anything it wants to. Like, why did the Wachowskis restrict themselves to this visual notion? You know what I mean? That was uh, a lot. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because in the blank check episode, Griffin mentions like he finds it. Uh, oh God, he finds it. He, he doesn't understand why when uh, Gloria Foster died, they couldn't sit there Fuck. recast a completely different character, a completely explain, different do actor. Ex- do they explain why the Oracle looks different though? Yeah, they do. Fuck that. Okay, no, I'm gonna. And, edit Griffin, this out. and Griffin goes like on a huge diatribe about how they should have like casted like a 12 year old boy. Every moment in this trilogy of us discussing the Matrix movies, every time when I ask you if Blank Check did something and you say yes, I'm going to edit it out and put in you saying no, which I'm sure I have to have somewhere, because we need to be the better definitive podcast about the Matrix series. I swear to God. <laughs> I want you to know, Rob, like much like uh, Griffin is the equation trying to balance itself out when it comes to you. <laughs> you are Griffin Newman, so let me know. I know. I've mentioned it before as well. I, I think I said to Ben once on recording where I was like, yeah, Zach listens to this podcast where one of the hosts is so similar to me it makes me angry to listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, enough about carte blanche. Enough about carte blanche. Any other moments from the revolutions? I think that's where we... uh, We've been talking about a lot, Zach, uh, and I've given you my thoughts, but anything else? Because... As soon as you say you're done with revolutions, I'm going to get into the fucking video games, and that's going to be a doozy. Okay. So, um, no, like I said, um, I, I like again, I, I like a lot about this movie. I think it's clunky as hell. Oh, um, but, the but on a subjective level, what? It's the clunkiest, is what I said. <laughs> it's all oh, these movies are clunky as hell. People were just so deluded with the first one that they couldn't, speaking, couldn't realize. Speaking it. of clunkiness, uh, in the third movie, there are two to three mentions specifically about characters going, "Oh, do we think the, it was the VDTs?" Like when Bane is not awake yet, they go, "Oh, it might be the VDTs." Did you know that there is no in-canon explanation of what this stands for? <laughs> It's funny, as I was watching that, I felt compelled to Google it, and I chose not to. Dude, I, I have a note, literally, that my note is verbatim. They mentioned VDTs twice so far. What does they this do. stand for? And then my follow-up note from doing research is, there's actually no canonical explanation of what this stands for. There's two leading theories. Either it's virtual delirium tremens, or it is virtual disease transmission. <laughs> but literally, nobody knows. The Wachowskis have never given an answer to what this means. <laughs> and I kind of love them for that. All right, Rob, go on your diatribe. Okay, so let's start with the path of Neo. Oh, God. 
Oh, jeez, how do we how do we talk, even talk about this, Zach? The uh, this is all now speculation for the fourth movie, I guess. I mean, of course, in the Path of Neo, there's some rehash between uh, the video game, the Path of Neo. There's some rehash between the earlier movies, but really, kind of everything that I want to talk about from here is, well, where the hell could the fourth movie go? Because that's the next big question. And I guess, Zach, you know, if you have any uh, any ideas or any predictions about where this will go, you know, you can throw them in as uh, as I get to certain things or anything of that nature. Um, but but really, I, I think we're in agreement. We finished the Matrix movies as they exist now. And the rest of the stuff I want to talk about is the, um, well, what has happened since 2003 and what could influence the fourth movie is that fair to say i think so okay okay right on so path of neo in contrast to last week uh which i said i played enter the matrix um i had that for ps2 and i played through it i did a bunch of cheat codes and stuff like i talked about last week it was good fun i have never played the path of neo and i've never played the matrix online so the path of neo that uh, video sorry video game comes out pretty shortly after the uh, Matrix Revolutions. Um, I watched about an hour and 15 minutes of footage for uh, this recording. Uh, A lot of it is just rehashing what happens in the movies. Uh, The first thing I want to mention is that uh, when you get to the point in the first movie where you as Neo, you play as Neo, can take the red pill or the blue pill, if you take the blue pill, Morpheus says, sorry, you won't be joining us, and the game ends. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea. But, of course, if you take the red pill, you get to play as Neo. Um, The first big change happens in the office scene. So, in the first movie, when Neo is trying to, or, sorry, Thomas Anderson, is trying to escape the agents, he's on the phone with Morpheus, uh, the movie plays it that he uh, says, like, oh, Morpheus says you have to go out on the scaffolding, and Neo says, I'm not doing that, and he gets captured. If you successfully do this in the path of Neo, if you climb on the scaffolding, if you uh, go through an entire stealth mission, that type of thing, uh, you will, as Neo, escape from your office building and get on a, a Harley, a motorcycle, with Trinity. If you don't, it plays through the whole sucking the, the bug out of your belly button, that type of thing, uh, from two weeks ago. Whatever. Most of the game is training simulations. You playing as Neo, and you're going through, you know, oh, this is teaching me how to steal things, this is teaching me how to fight things, this is teaching me how to shoot things, all that stuff. It's useless. But then, you play through the rest of the first movie, but then the first change happens. At the end of the first movie, Neo gets sucked into a portal. (laughs) Zach and I were talking about Marvel movies before we recorded. This one has a portal as well. And as Neo gets sucked into the portal, he's stuck in a train car that is on a loop. He has no hard line to get out of the Matrix. He's stuck on basically a subway train going in a circle. You basically then play through the remaining events of the first movie, where it's like Neo is sucked into this portal. When he's able to get out the train car, he finds Agent Smith, that type of thing. Um, He jumps into him and makes him explode like we see at the first movie. But then things really start to diverge. The second act of Path of Neo is that Neo has to find a character called the Healer. Um, Very much like Keymaker has to find the Healer, who he protects. And in return, the Healer gives Neo 
when he rescues him, uh, potions slash spells that make him stronger. Like video game things. That's going to come up a lot in the MMO. The healer also gives the world, the Matrix, that we know in these movies, a cure for cancer. That actually happens. That's canon. That the healer, after Neo saves him, not from the Merovingian, but just from, like, backhaul exile, introduces a cure for cancer into the world. That happens, Zach. I don't know. Any comments on that, Zach? It's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> it's funny. I know the path of Neo gets weird. I, I remember, like, in, like, 2006, seven reading about that game, and I know it gets very, very uh, bizarre at times. I'm glad you say that because that's going to come up more because uh, I-, I know you had a very re- a very high response to uh, the Animatrix segment, the second Renaissance Part 2, when the machines visited the UN and you were like, that's just some crazy shit. Get ready, Zach. Hold, hold your fucking seat arms. Get ready, okay? But so after the healer does this stuff, um, Neo has to go to the Merovingians Club to get a key. Uh, he has to get a key from a woman. The woman is not really highly identified, uh, but one of the bouncers took it from her. She's trapped in the Ver- Merovingians' dungeons, which I think I mentioned last week from the video game Enter the Matrix. The Merovingians' palace dungeons are like torture chambers. They basically just kidnap people and torture them to see what their limits are or limits of the program are, that type of thing. So Neo has to go to the Merovingian and get this key. He seemingly gets the key, but it brings him to Seraph in the back halls, the backdoor hallways of the source that we've been talking about. While Neo is in there, he encounters a different woman who is trying to escape agents. Like It's very video gamey, of course. You know, Neo has to encounter a new task. And this new task is that a woman who has found a glitch in a library, is battling agents, and Neo seems to free her from the Matrix. Um, another video game thing, Neo has to encounter a painter called Shang Tzu, and that, that, I'm just reading this. Uh, it's Shang Tzu, who the agents are after, because apparently he's painting too good. I don't know, he might have nine 211 rings, to be honest, Zach. I don't know, but the agents have to stop him. Uh, and, and Neo frees him from the Matrix. Uh, we get to see Neo going in Path of Neo to the, the, uh, the, the meeting at the beginning of the Matrix Reloaded. He helps save some of the captains from that Asian attack. He saves specifically Ballard, Niobe, and Roland. So Niobe and Roland are the ones on the ship in the Matrix Revolutions. Ballard is the one in Matrix Reloaded who gives Neo the information that he wants to, uh, the, the Oracle wants to contact him, that type of thing. Um, Neo goes to meet with Seraph, just like in the second movie. They do that fight in the tea house that we see in the second movie that I described as a chap, a, a, a challenge handshake authentication protocol. Uh, we see that scene happen, but it is extended where they bust through the roof of that tea house. They start having a fight on like these these pillars. They end up being inside of a movie theater while still fighting, but the movie theater screen is playing the scene from The Matrix Reloaded where they fight, and there's this really weird meta moment of somebody in the audience going, you know, sit down, that type of thing, when the thing on screen is what we're seeing in real life. It's it's really strange, but of course that happens. Neo meets the, the Oracle uh, they, he brawls with all the smiths, that type of thing. We get the intro to the Merovingian. 
we actually have this extra scene in the path of Neo where Neo meets a woman in the Merovingian's house who is basically Black Canary. Her scream is supersonic. Like, her scream sends out a shockwave. So Neo teams up with this person, and they battle through the Merovingian's mansion. They reach the Merovingian. Once again, the the Merovingian gives them some fucking type of riddle, that type of thing. Um, and her his riddle is to, like, save this other woman... It might have been Persephone, I'm not sure, because it's like 2D polygon PS2 graphics, but Neo saves this person who attacks him, he runs into the backdoor hallways, the Keymaker's there, the Keymaker and Neo and Morpheus basically go through the, the remainder of the second movie, but here's where the big divergence takes place. Okay. So everything I've said is kind of just flourished. Like, the Wachowskis just had flourish on the second movie. This is where I think something actually fucking happens. Zach, do you remember how two weeks ago, when I discussed the second Renaissance, I discussed a moment where the machine ambassadors showed up to the UN to ask for peace? Do you remember that? Of course. And you said, you were like, the Wachowskis are kind of fucking bonkers, you know? I think that was your response, basically, right? Something like that. Something like that. Okay. So in in the path of Neo, when the keymaker opens a door for Neo and Morpheus to go through, which in the movie is just the source, basically, it's a little different in the video game. When they go through this door, Neo and Morpheus are put on the floor of Congress. And in Congress, a politician has the floor and is talking about how video games are basically a detriment to moral society. And I'm not talking this is just a brief thing. It's like a solid 30 to 40 seconds of a an animated politician going like, video games are bad. If our youth plays video games, we can never, never regain them, that type of thing. And I firmly believe that these awful, horrible, violent video games are offensive to our most Basic values. What the hell are you boys doing? This turns into, of course, this happens when Morpheus and Neo enter the scene. This scene turns into Agent Smith jumping onto the frame, assimilating the congressman, assimilating all of the congressmen. And Zach, I am not kidding you. There is a wide shot of the Congress building, Congress room, I should say, where everybody is Agent Smith, and it is fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Isn't this what you were saying about machines visiting the UN? Isn't this the goofiness of the Wachowskis of Agent Smith controlling Congress, right? uh, That's something else, man. I didn't know about that. (laughs) Nobody did until me, apparently. But, But how cool is that? Like, Congress... Smith takes over Congress. You Because, Zach, I mean, you're, like... Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's a very famous movie, right? That has to be what the Wachowskis are playing on. Like, Smith takes over Congress. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, okay. So, they go. Smith takes over Congress. Neo and Morpheus escape Congress. I guess that's what you fucking call it. Whatever. And then, basically, the remainder of the second movie plays out. Is where, um, you know, uh, Neo goes to the architect... Uh, he had a quick detour through Congress. Fucking greatest thing. But he meets the architect. That part of the movie plays out. Then, now here's the thing, Zach. This is the big thing. Have you ever heard 
about the Wachowskis scene in The Path of Neo. Because oh, there yeah. is... Okay, okay, you have, you have. So you, mm-hmm. you have some knowledge of this. Yeah. Okay, I, I didn't want to blindside you completely. Yeah, they're like, they're like Minecraft characters. Well, they're Moon Knight characters from Aqua okay, Hunger yeah. Force. Yeah, but they're, they're literally blocky, rectangular characters. The one that is blue says he's Andy. The one that is pink says Larry. And I wrote this quote down, Zach, so please bear with me. We get this crazy scene, like, just as, as Neo and Smith are about to fight at, in the big climactic battle from the Matrix Revolutions as it is displayed in The Path of Neo. Right before this big climactic battle happens, it cuts to white. Two Morpheus chairs, like, zoom in uh, from the two sides of the screen, and they are populated or sat in by... Moonanite-looking characters, blocky 2D characters, where one of them is blue, one of them is pink. The blue one says, I'm Andy, and the, Lar- and the pink one says, I'm Larry. Hi, I'm Andy Wachowski. And I'm Larry Wachowski. Or rather, these are the digital projections of our mental selves. First of all, congrats on reaching the final stage of this game. You kick ass. Yes, we salute your excellence on the gaming field. Now, the real reason we're here is to discuss the big problem we faced in turning these three movies into a video game. You see, at this point in the story, Neo stands on the verge of Satori, ready to resolve the paradox of choice and choicelessness, of free will versus fate, but that can only be achieved through an act of surrender, which he occurs after he has abandoned the perspectival nature of truth, accepting the totality of present consciousness, which ultimately allows an evolutionary transition, transcending the Cartesian dilemma through the emergence of delimited spirit, which then provides the world with a choice of a third path, the path of Neo, the path of peace. You promised you wouldn't do that. Shit. Sorry. I think what my brother's trying to say is, at this point, it's martyr time. Now, maybe that works in a movie, but in a video game, the Jesus thing is, well... Lame. Really lame. If you're like us, then right now you're ready for 15 minutes of sweaty, palmed, button-pushing action to kick the crap out of some big, badass boss. So we suggested to the Chinese that we change the ending. We thought it would be cool after Smith rose up screaming, It's my world! The other Smiths jumped onto emerging into one massive monster, monster mega Smith. So if you're ready, it's time for a little Hulk versus Galactus action. Good luck. You'll need it. And enjoy enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just read this, Zach. This is what they go on to say. After they introduce themselves, they go on to say, quote, or rather, these are the digital projections of our mental selves. First of all, congrats on reaching the final stage of this game. You kick ass. Yes. We salute your excellence on the gaming field. Now, the real reason we're here is to discuss the big problem we faced in turning these three movies into a video game. You see, at this point in the story, Neo stands at the verge of Satori, ready to resolve the paradox of choice and choicelessness, of free will versus fate. But that can only be achieved through an act of surrender, which occurs after he has abandoned the perspectival nature of truth, accepting the totality of the Cartesian dilemma through the emergence of delimited spirit, which then provides the world with the choice of a third path, the path of Neo, the path of peace. This is cut off by the blue character, Andy, saying, You promised you wouldn't do that. And in response, we get Larry, the pink one, saying, Shit, sorry. (laughs) 
And then they go on. Uh, they, 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 there's more in that cutscene. But Zach, I don't know. I don't know even how to frame this idea. Like when I watched this for this recording, I was like, do I clip this and send it to Zach? Like to get him to watch it? Like, is this important or is it not? Like, this is the weirdest thing of transmedia to me. Oh, it's where, it's funny. It's okay. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned this. Please, please talk to me about this, Zach. I clearly don't know what I want to say I, about this. <laughs> I remember, like, back, had to be, like, 2005, 6, or 7, reading about this. Yes, 2005 would have been uh, the uh, the year of its release, yeah. Okay. Which is, like, at that point, like, a year and a half after the film's out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is strange. They, I remember they waited a long time to make this game. Um, I remember reading about this. Had to be 2006, give or take. And I remember being like, like as a kid, like, what? It's like a blurb in the Wikipedia article about the game. Yes, yes. And so I'm like, okay. And then years, it has to be like two, three years later, uh, a friend of my past, Sal, I remember asking Sal, because Sal, like, mentioned the Path of Neo. Oh, are you talking about Sal Volcano from the uh, Impractical Jokers? You know Sal? No, not that Sal. Oh, no. I don't want to know He's... any Sal other than that. <laughs> so I remember, like, he he mentioned at some point, like, the Path of Neo. I'm like, is it true that, like, at the end of the game, like, you fight a giant Agent Smith and, like, no. the Wachowskis are there? Like, yes. his little avatars? Yes, that's and the part like, I haven't gotten to yet, but yes. I know, I spoiled <laughs> that. And Sal's like, and Sal, and I quote, said, yeah, that game fucking sucks. <laughs> and I said, okay. Sal, want- Sal would say that because if anybody on the in, in the human existence, if I ever expected to give a, a controller to somebody... Sal would be the one who goes, I don't get it, you know? Ain't <laughs> <laughs> that the truth? <laughs> nice. So after that, like, years later, it has to be maybe now, like, 20, oh, God, 15 or 16, maybe even 17. I looked, I'm like, oh, I'm like, somehow I stumbled down the rabbit's hole of Path of Neo, like, for a third time. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, like the Wachowskis. At that point, I knew all about them, like these individuals, and like knew how camera shy they were, especially from that era. And I'm like, wait, like did, like, did they actually like film themselves? So like I like I go on YouTube, type in like Path of Neo Wachowskis, and then I came across the video slash cut scene of them, like as as I refra- phrased it, Minecraft characters. Yes. And I got like a minute through the video, and I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> my, my, well, one, Minecraft characters is a really great explanation. When I said Moonanites, I think that is an earlier version of the same explanation, right? <laughs> one a little more of a contemporary like, uh, analogy than the well, other. Yeah, the moon, the Moonanites are basically squares. Minecraft characters at least have some humanoid qualities. <laughs> I, 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 I don't disagree. <laughs> Perfect. Zach, you handled it perfectly. Absolutely. <laughs> so yes, Rob, please continue to tell us more about the Path of Neo. No, no, I think um after, you know, I, I, I read Giant that... Smith, Rob! Giant Smith! Well, yes, Smith. yes, yes. I, I read that whole diatribe from, uh you know, Larry Wachowski at the time of the recording. You know, don't get me, don't at me, everybody. Uh, I read that whole quote, but then they go on to talk about Giant Mega Smith, 
And that's how the path of Neo ends, is that all the smiths come together using rubble, buildings, cars, whatever they can find, themselves, and they form a giant smith, like the size of a skyscraper. It even takes a giant pair of sunglasses off a billboard to put on. <laughs> and I think that's what we were saying last week. Like, isn't it kind of weird that the sunglasses for Smith are so inherently tied to that personality? <laughs> Another point that Blank Check brings up. Um, no, yes. It's the idea that even when we see, like, that part where, like, Bane is on his knees and Neo is blinded and we see, like, the, the flame silhouette of Agent Smith, even then he has the glasses on. You, you say flame, you should say orange, because that's the code of the real world. But you're absolutely correct. The orange code of Smith in Bane's body has sunglasses. <laughs> may I say, real quick, may I say that in 2007, that if anybody remembers AOL Instant Messenger AIM, mm -hmm. my avatar was the the Smith like oh god, orange flame real world thing that Neo sees when he's blinded. That was my AIM avatar. That's how edgy I was in 2007. You were the edgiest, Zach, might I say. <laughs> Truly. The edgiest. Edge so, Lord. like I mentioned, you know, um, uh, I'll put the clip in, if I haven't already, about the Mega Smith from the uh, the Minecraft character Wachowskis. But that's the end of the path of Neo. Neo has to fight a giant Mega Smith. And causing his HP to reach zero ends, uh, basically makes the end of the third movie happen. Where he explodes into light, that type of thing. So, at the end of both the trilogy and the path of Neo... There's no real difference. They end in the same place. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Zach, I don't want to discount anything. If you have anything more to say about the Matrix trilogy, this final movie, please do. Because if you have nothing else to say, you are giving me the reins to talk about the Matrix online for the next, I don't know, six hours? <laughs> go ahead, Rob. I'm going to go make a sandwich, wash my hair, uh... Write that novel I've been working on for the last decade. Fair, fair. I, I think, Jesus, I need to prepare to some extent. Okay, so, The Matrix Online, the MXO, as it is called in some communities, uh, this was the Matrix MMORPG, the massively multiplayer online game revolving around The Matrix. I am not about to say that I know everything about this game. I've never played it. I've never dived into it at all. Everything I'm about to say is because of my research regarding what other people think the game is about, uh, regarding what the cutscenes are about, that type of thing. But I think I've done a good enough research. But I really wanted to state right at the start, I've never played this game. Like, I played Enter the Matrix, you know, last week. I, I have never played the MMO. But here we go. Okay, game starts. Player, the player. You're not Neo, you're not anybody in particular, you are a player. You are visited or go to visit the Oracle, Mary Alice Oracle. Uh, and she tells the player that, you know, you have to start freeing blue pills and earning acolytes. Like, that is the impetus of the game, is that if you are in the Matrix, you know it's a computer program, you are trying to free people from the Matrix, there's a lot of talk about choice, of who to support, who to oppose, who to believe, very much in line with the uh, theories of the movie, that type of thing. But in the following cutscene, we get Sati, 
So Sati runs up in this cutscene and she says something to Oracle like, the sun is jerky. Like every time I try to work on the landscape, the sun is, is glitching. And the Oracle says that there are glitches remaining because of the Smith program. That's the impetus. That's like the first act of this of this online game is that clearly the Oracle, Sati, Seraph, well, Seraph is the guardian. Oracle and Sati are trying to refine this new iteration of the Matrix, but they're having problems because of the remnants of the previous iterations of the Matrix. We go into, you know, Morpheus visiting the Oracle. Uh, the Oracle offers him a cookie, which is very important. Talked about that two weeks ago. But the Oracle ex- describes to him how about the outcome is being different because of choice. Uh, Neo made a choice different from any choice the one has ever made and that Morpheus has to be distraught by that but Morpheus doesn't really want to accept being distraught by that Morpheus thinks that since the Oracle succeeded at the end of the third Matrix movie at the end of Revolutions that he shouldn't have this this ambiguity in how to feel with the this new iteration of the Matrix but he does he feels problematic with it he feels like he is being rescued but he shouldn't be because he's already out of the matrix this scene also describes very explicitly morpheus is pissed as shit for one thing when neo gave himself to the machine city to conquer smith at the end of revolutions the machines take his body away you remember that zach you know when uh when the How could I forget, Rob? Of course, of course. Um, Morpheus is pissed that the machines have not returned Neo's body, or as he calls him, his artifacts, to the humans. So Neo is just, like, jacked up that it's like, Neo did this thing for us, but why can't we get his remains? We want to give him a burial, that type of thing. It's, it's very, very, you know, humanistic, uh, that nature. Morpheus is so angry that the machines are non-responsive in his desire to get Neo's remains back, that Morpheus goes out planting code bombs throughout the Matrix. The idea of this is that Morpheus is basically a terrorist, that at all major cell phone stations, he's planting what they call a, quote, code bomb, that when it goes off, it will reveal to the blue pills that they are a part of a simulation which, should be fair, it's not a simulation, it's a simulacrum. Morpheus kind of goes out rogue, and he says, it's like, well, fuck. If I can't get the recognition that I deserve from the machines and causing this change, I'm going to fuck shit up. So, all over the world, he starts planting code bombs, which reveal the Matrix to certain people. Here's the thing. This is, the bi- this is like the big turning point. He is murdered by an ancient disposal program from the Merovingian. Like, Zach, I I am serious. Morpheus gets shot six times. (laughs) Like, Morpheus, in the continuity of the Matrix, as we know right now, is dead. I don't know if you knew this before, Zach, but I wanted to throw this into our first... I'm just devastated, Rob. I don't know if I'm going to do it myself. I'm devastated, too, but... I want to throw this into our first discussion about, well, what, why the hell do we think the next Matrix is going to be this way? The MMO sets this up. Morpheus, a.k.a. Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus, is dead. 
Later on in the Matrix MMO, he gets reformulated from memories of code, which explains that he might be different in further iterations of the Matrix. Doesn't that explain the Yahya Abdul-Mateen III aspect of him playing Morpheus in the new movie? Yeah. So I'm with you, Zach. I don't know if I love it or hate it, but it's there. This has been established back in 2006 that Morpheus died and was reconstituted in a different shell. Are you okay with this? Do you hate this? Are you upset that a, I brought this ex, to your up to your it knowledge? It explains a lot. It explains a lot of the trailer now. <laughs> yes. So the Morpheus thing I wanted to highlight because that explains why we're going to get a different Morpheus in this new movie. But let's keep going. Morpheus is dead. There's a high implication that he was hired to be killed by an assassin who only goes by the name The Assassin by the Merovingian. So the Merovingian basically called a hit on Morpheus after the events of the third movie because Morpheus was the only one at at the end of the events of the third movie when so much of the Matrix is reset and, and re-problematized, the Merovingian is still there. He's angry about these new changes. He has to kill Morpheus because he sees Morpheus, the Merovingian sees Morpheus as this character who is going to pull humanistic desire into the Matrix. And he gets killed. The assassin I want to dive into a little bit because they show us a lot about him. It's apparently a part of the MMO game where you have to find and kill the assassin as Niobe. Niobe, Jada Pinkett Smith, who is also signed up for this new movie. When the assassin kills Morpheus, all of the captains of the ships basically say, well, let's find out who killed Morpheus. Niobe is the one that finds him on a trash barge. And Zach, I am not kidding you. This is a real thing. When Niobe unloads multiple shotguns and machine guns and vicious weapons to kill this assassin, he turns into a bundle of flies. So literally, the person who killed Morpheus is a bundle of flies wearing a trench coat and a top hat. Seriously. Any thoughts on that at all? Why not? It's kind of... Uh, I don't want to say immaculate. It's kind of like, you know, just like, oh, okay, we're doing that type of thing, right? It's oddly enough in their wheelhouse where I'm not shocked by any of this, to be completely honest. Exactly. That, that's what I was thinking. Like last week when we talked about, or maybe two weeks ago, when we talked about how um, the Wachowskis had machine ambassadors show up to the UN. Earlier today, I talked about how, you know, they had uh, Agent Smith take over con- Congress. Isn't this kind of just the Wachowski's crazy notion where they're like, oh, yeah. Like, isn't isn't that the Wachowski's kind of storytelling arc of just go, oh, yeah. (laughs) I think this is them just being them. Them being them is another fair point. Absolutely. So this happens, of course. I, I mean, and then really this comes out into total, I don't know the best way to say it. It's not just like storytelling it's artistic telling the last like 20 minutes of matrix online the last 20 minutes of the cutscenes you can watch online become unfathomable like literally i (laughs) i I, I want i just want to say this to you because zach you're gonna know what i mean when i say this the last five minutes of the matrix online 
it turns into such abstract abstractification. I don't know if I can explain to you what happens, and I don't know when I'll be ready to rewatch this to explain to you what happens. It is straight up like David Lynch, Stanley Kubrick, last 20 minutes in the movie, total uncertainty, just along for the ride. Like, literally, in the last, like, 10 minutes of cutscenes from the MMO, the MXO, I was like, okay, yeah, the next time Zach wants me to talk about, you know, episode 8 of Twin Peaks, I'm gonna pitch this type of thing. That's how abstract it gets. It's wild, Zach. <laughs> and I know you didn't watch this. I didn't tell you to watch it or anything like that. But I just wanted to reiterate to you that it's like, this is how crazy the Wachowskis get with this material. And I think you can appreciate Rob, it. get to the goddamn point. Enough foreplay. Well, my point is, are are you in agreement? <laughs> like, are you... Like, the Wachowskis have created such a lore that it needs time to explain, like Twin Peaks, but screen time does not give it that era of appropriateness, so everything that comes down is just to research from the audience, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. But, so, that's the thing. How do we... The Wachowskis and David Lynch, that's my comparison I'm making. I, I don't know, I don't know how to formulate this. I think they are both storytelling, like, masters. Do you agree? No, not, not the Wachowskis. They sit there, can't stop just making things unnecessary. David Lynch well, is... Well, well, please, is... yeah, that's what I'm saying. Please, please compare the Wachowskis to David Lynch. Because I, I saw a lot of similarities, like I've been mentioning, between the Matrix trilogy, specifically in the third movie, with David Lynch and Twin Peaks Season 3. Well... I, I I don't agree with that like one to one comparison. I think in the case of David Lynch that it's just layers. It's it's not layers. There's meaning to everything. As in like okay, he's doing it through metaphors, things like that. Are you saying that's not meaning to everything in the Matrix trilogy? I think there's meaning, but I think it's just unnecessarily convoluted. So I think you, there's just they saying... shovel. I think there's a difference between like strokes of a paintbrush and just shoveling things. Are you saying that the Wachowskis obfuscate their message more than David Lynch does? Hundred percent. That is something I think we need a different episode to discuss because Rob, I could not disagree more. Rob, the point of the, at the end of the the, the, the game. Dude, we haven't even gotten to the MMO. We're still on the path of Neo, right? No, we are on the MMO. Sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, I'm just, just I, I wanna, I wanna highlight this a little more because it's probably about the Matrix movies comparison between the Chows- the Wachowskis and David Lynch. You, you think there is a storytelling aspect that is different between the two of them? Yes, I said I just gave that a okay. Yes, I yeah, think yeah, David, no, no, I know you did. I know you, I know you just talked about that a little bit, but I, I want, I want some more detail because I don't agree with what you said. Like David Lynch's and the Wachowskis, they they know when they're dense and they know when they need to exposit. Right. The thing about the Wachowskis is that it's it's muddled and it's convoluted. Like they have their notions there. They've just put so much there that's just kind of superfluous in some instances and that it detracts from their overall message. Mm, It's called like – it's sometimes less is more. Do you think that David Lynch does that only at the beginning or end of Twin Peaks Season 3? Because you're right. Twin Peaks Season 3, the middle of it is a lot of basically like, you know – well, we've talked about it. The uh, the Tarantino baiting of the Tim Roth and uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh scene at the end of Twin Peaks Season 3 or The Return. 
But most of the time, David Lynch is doing his own thing. It's really in the middle when he's making fun of other filmmakers, right? Yeah. I don't know if he's making... uh, That's the other thing. I I don't know if this is really worth bringing up because we've talked about it. David Lynch is making fun of his contemporary filmmakers, like the whole Tim Roth, Jennifer Jason Leigh, like, blocking the driveway scene in, what, episode 14 or whatever. That's, like, clearly a dig on Tarantino. He's never digging on... Wachowskis. He's never he's never digging on anybody but Tarantino, right? I I think we can't ignore the similarities to that in other Tarantino films, but I don't know what David David Lynch is very much his own person. I don't think he feel like he has to emulate or oh god, veil mock anybody. I'm with you, but I I don't want to get you wrong, Zach. I I brought this up because I remember you when we were watching Twin Peaks Season 3, Twin Peaks The Return, whatever you want to call it, that you described that moment of Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Leigh getting killed in the van as a faux Tarantino moment, right? Yeah. Am I still to create the perfect system? Yeah. Okay, I, I I didn't want to misrepresent you, but okay, here we go. Oh, God, the Matrix MMO. (laughs) I know I've described the first 10% of it. (laughs) I texted Zach that it was like reading the Silmarillion. It was so dense, uh, that type of thing. I think I've covered a lot of the details of what the Matrix MMO covers, but there's a few moments I wanted to highlight. There is actually a big point of the Matrix MMO, the Matrix Online, where players had to find the parts of Neo, the parts of the One. I think, you know, without going into reading fucking way too many points that don't make sense about the the Matrix Online, the other big points that I want to mention are that, um, like I said before, the Merovingian is an operating system. The Merovingian is the big enemy of the Matrix Online, which makes me think the Merovingian will be the big enemy villain of the fourth movie i wanted to pick your brain on that zach because i know i mentioned you last week lambert wilson is a hundred percent credited as the merovingian in the new matrix movie do you think they're gonna lean on him as a plot point or do you think they're gonna use him as just a quick brief exposition mention to just continue the story it it, it's it depends because it's the Merovingian is something I don't think he's the most egregious thing in the pop culture when it comes to the Matrix, but I do think he's something that people just kind of don't look look back upon fondly. Yeah. Um I don't know. I, I think he's integral. He's integral, but I don't know if you make him the, the pro a primary antagonist. I would agree. Just to be fair, like I said earlier, maybe two hours ago, where the fuck it happened. Uh he is the proto oracle. I He's the Oracle from the second Matrix that gets exiled. Uh, I think that has to inherently have a big ideal. But you're right in saying that, like, who the fuck remembers him from these movies? When common audiences are going into Matrix 4, aren't they going to go, I want Keanu Reeves and Trinity? They're not even going to know Trinity's real name, Carrie Ann Moss. They're going to go Keanu Reeves and Trinity, right? Yeah, that and Agent Smith. Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. What, who is still not signed on to the new movie. Hugo Weaving has no connection to the new movie. Kind of (laughs) crazy. I guess other than that, you know, just some moments I wanted to say, um, there's a lot of talk in the Matrix Online about 
recycling RSIs. So RSIs are residual self-images. Whenever anybody goes into the Matrix, the way they are perceived in the Matrix, that's about the first movie, that's their RSI, their residual self-image. The the Matrix Online talks about how that might get corrupted from real world to Matrix type of stuff. I also want to mention, which just to make sure I make clear, at the end of the Matrix Revolutions, when Neo gives his body over to the machines after saving the Matrix from Agent Smith, from achieving this sense of truce, his body is separated and put into different parts in the Matrix Online. The big premise of the Matrix Online was for players to find the parts of the One, and they never did before it got canceled in 2009. And I can only imagine that's where our next movie is going to take place. I can only imagine that, you know, we're going to deal with the um, oh, RSIs of Trinity and, and Morpheus and Neo have still existed through this iteration of the Matrix. How does that play a role? I really, I don't want to speculate too much because, Zach, I'm just fucking excited. I'm just fucking excited all? for this movie, man. Another Wachowski, Wachowski, you know, not plural type of thing. I'm still pumped. I, I'm going to see this on opening day, and I'm so fucking jacked for it, man. <laughs> hey, kids. Rob here with a little interjection uh, with some more things about the Matrix Online and to clarify some of the things I've already said about it. So I watched the cutscenes, uh, compilation of cutscenes that you can find on YouTube in a few different forms. The artwork is the first thing that I want to mention, is that at a certain point... As I believe the game lost funding, it would seem like, the artwork for the cutscenes becomes 2D black and white pencil sketch drawings. Like, very, very comic book-like. Instead of the rendered cinematics that it is for the first chunk of the cutscenes. Um, the artwork of the cutscenes, kind of the quality as well, changes as uh, they go on. Getting more abstract and more minimal. At the last five to six minutes is, it's basically a music video, and like I already said, it's almost impenetrable. It's shot almost, or, you know, stylized almost something like, like an NES video game cutscene, where you just have kind of, you know, artwork with panning camera and text at the bottom. Uh, you can't really tell which characters are which. Um, it, it was, it's just so wild. Like I said, the last five to six minutes is incomprehensible. So... Stuff happens, like, in all these cutscenes, but with the artwork changing and things getting harder to follow visually, that, you know, things happen, but I don't—they're very disconnected. I don't really know how much importance any one thing has, because they'll, the cutscenes will focus on certain aspects that seem to then disappear later on. It's very strange, and um, it, is, it is worth checking out, because I think there might be some ties to the new Matrix movie, um, but we'll, we'll have to see when it comes out. Some things when I do want to mention about the Matrix Online uh, that do happen in the cutscenes, or are explained in the cutscenes, I think, fairly well, is that, in essence, the peace that Neo has achieved at the end of the third movie uh, does not hold. It cannot hold, because humans and machines both suck. And this seems to be because humans and machines are basically breaking off into factions. They're basically like the clans you can join in the game. And these factions are based on schools of thought revolving around how the Matrix should be run. And so the schools of thought are things on the line of people should have the choice to be in the Matrix. People should be in the Matrix but be unaware of it. Uh, there should be no Matrix at all. And, and, and things like that. I think those are the big ones. 
there's a lot of notions of the machines choosing which side to be on. Um, like there's some sentinel on sentinel fights and machine on machine fights you see throughout the cutscenes. Just like, you know, people can choose what they believe in machines to be able to seem to be able to make that choice now as well in this iteration of the matrix uh there's some stuff with potions that give people like powers like the one there's stuff where there's like these polygon wire mesh looking characters that are incredibly power that have like one type powers some of them fight each other so they're on different factions it seems uh there's there's a point where sati gets kidnapped seraph goes looking for her and then later seraph is hunting uh, some program that's infecting humans in the Matrix, and he's also, like, cleansing the humans that are already infected. It, like I said, it's all over the place, and a lot of crazy stuff happens, and um, we'll see how insane Matrix Resurrections gets. I think that was it. Uh, you can read about the Matrix Online more uh, online, uh, it turns out. There's some articles that, you know, try and describe what happens in the cutscenes, and also from some people who've actually played the game and know a lot more about the gameplay than I do, and uh, things of that nature. I don't know, Zach, any, uh, any, I think I covered everything I had to. Any final thoughts about the Matrix, about the Matrix franchise, the trilogy? We have, we had so much to discuss in these episodes. Oh, yes. No, I'm ready to move on. I, I kind of am too, but I don't really want to. <laughs> I think I said it best in when we discussed the first Matrix that I said, like, uh, this Matrix Resurrections is going to be Lana's view on the fourth Matrix. A year from now, we're going to get Lily's view on the fourth Matrix. They're going to be totally incomparable. I, I don't know. I don't know. So with that being said, Zach, are you ready for our questions? Was there any moments? Yes. Okay, oh, Zach, no, well, no, questions. <laughs> Zach wants this to be over as soon as possible. I mean, Zach, we've only been talking for like three hours and ten minutes. I mean. <laughs> it was a lot longer than that. So this is easy. Cinemodities, absolutely, late night, a hundred percent. I mean, honestly, I know we don't do it with this series because we've talked about them all separately. But if somebody wants to watch one Matrix movie, they're getting Ludovico techniqued into watching all three of them with me. If that's fair, you know what I mean? Oh yes. <laughs> what do you think about uh, Cinemodities and Late Night for Revolutions? Uh, yes to both. It has to be right. Oh there, yes. There's, there's. I, I, this is another thing I want to pick your brain on, Zach. There's no trilogy finale that compares to this one, right? Like, every other trilogy... We mentioned um, Return of the Jedi. And that's that ties up all the loose ends that we've been discussing or we've been watching in the Star Wars trilogy. You think about Lord of the Rings. There's a big battle scene and that type of stuff, but it really does tie up all the loose ends from the earlier two movies. I think that the Matrix Revolutions, and please, Zach, this is what I want your thoughts on, is this one of the, the only movies that ties up threads that were not established in previously, previous movies and ties them up in such a way that it makes the audience mad? This is one of the most ambitious trilogy endings I've ever seen, I guess is what my question becomes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, is, uh, this, this, this certainly is, in many regards, unique in that sense because... It, 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 there is no, there's payoff for things aren't set up. Yes, you are right. It's, it's wild. It's absolutely fucking wild. And I hope that, uh, I know, well, not I hope, but I hope for anybody I don't get to talk to, but I know for the people that I'm going to see the Matrix 4, the Matrix Resurrections, when I buy their tickets, 
on December 20th or whatever, you know, when we buy our tickets for opening night, they're going to go, how much of the Matrix do I need to know about? I'm going to go, you need to listen to 12 hours of my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, I think that brings us to snacks. Zach, I am hoping you're going to fill in snacks better than I am because I only have one. Because I was so into the message of these movies and the uh, the essence of these movies more than snacks. I would like APUs for the restaurant. Whenever we have a table that might need a lot of deliveries at once, maybe we got like a 12 top or something like that, we have a, somebody in a big mech suit deliver that to them. So I that is the only snack I had was big mech suit to become a waiter for a table. <laughs> I put all of my other effort into discussing or thinking about the remainder of the of the Matrix franchise. So Zach, please, what snacks do you have? Um we should have the the, the cookie plate busting uh, thing where you just have like, a plate of cookies and instead of it being like delivered to your table, we just like smack it across the table. <laughs> Agent Smith gets so pissed off about the idea of precognition that he slaps cookies across the table. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, otherwise, there's not a lot of food in this. Um, no. No, this, it's a pretty dry food in that – or dry food. Dry film in the food sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that all being said, Zach, uh, without this going seven more hours, there were some moments um, – the oligarchs, the general, uh, the recreation of the cypherites. This is all things I hope appear in the fourth Matrix movie, and I cannot wait to talk about in the fourth Matrix movie. Zach, thank you so much for picking this as a series. I think our entire audience can gather that I was really disenfranchised by Spider-Man last month. Uh, see two episodes where I became unbearingly drunk, which I do apologize for. But, Zach, I am very glad that you've picked The Matrix, and I hope that I have given such a detailed discussion of The Matrix in this series that we can both look forward to The Matrix 4 with grand knowledge. Is that fair to say? Oh, it's it's going to be an interesting experience thanks to this podcast. <laughs> Perfect. So with that being said, I don't know what we're doing next week. Zach and I, before recording, like I mentioned earlier, we're kind of torn. Are we going to do Jupiter Ascending? Um, Are we going to do Matrix Revolutions? Uh, Sorry, Resurrections. Sorry, Resolutions, whatever the fuck it's called. Maybe tune in next week to find out. Is that fair to say? Oh, I it'll be fun. It'll be fun. That's what yes. we can promise. So, Zach, at the end of this, we've done all three Matrix movies. I think I've covered all the ancillary material. Any final thoughts on this series? I don't know. Just cross your fingers and hope for a good movie. I'm kind of with you. I know you said it like uh, three, two or three weeks ago. You were like, I hope Far From Home is a good movie. I'm with you. I hope Revolute. Fuck, now I'm doing it too. <laughs> nope, Resurrections is a good movie. <laughs> That's all I'm hoping for at this point. <laughs> but it, it's probably going to be like me rationalizing it to a great extent type of thing. The only reason Revolutions... Fuck. The only reason Resurrections won't come out next week is because I say to Zach, I need more time to think about it and see it again. That's the only reason that's going to delay it, right? Something like that, probably. Okay, okay, that's fair. If that does not happen, we're going to be doing Jupiter Ascending next week, uh, and I recommend everybody 
file their tax grievance for that episode. So, Zach, with that all being said, any final thoughts about the um, uh, the, the the Matrix trilogy? I think if you had more snacks, I, I might have cut you off from that for this movie. Uh, any final any final thoughts about any of this stuff? Nope. I think we should play the uh, the the, the uh, orchestral score that plays over the credits. That was also the Agent Smith uh, neo battle music. Do you mean the end credits or the starting credits? End credits. Okay, end credits. Yes, I have the exact same thing. It's called Navris by Juno Reactor versus Don Davis. <laughs> 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 that is actually what it's credited as. We should play that out. And I guess, you know, with that being said, Zach, geez, I hope everybody has gotten some knowledge of the Matrix movies. Zach, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but with with how much love I've given to these movies, you do agree with me to some extent, right? That these movies have a level of appreciation. You might have to be robbed to appreciate them at this level, but you you are in agreement that these movies have depth, right? Oh, that's for sure. Thank you. That's all I wanted, because I fucking hated, at that end of the carte blanche reloaded episode I watched, Griffin was like, these movies are kind of stupid. They're not stupid. They're the farthest thing from they're stupid. Kind of a, they're not stupid, but they're kind of a mess. They are, they're, they're not kind of a mess. They are a fucking mess. But uh, I guess um, this will all be finished off when we do Resurrections uh, as an episode as soon as we can, right? Oh, yes. Okay, well, and then I think I said we'll end this episode with Navris by Juno, Ray Creator, and uh, Don Davis in reverse. Any final thoughts about The Matrix, Zach, before we get to this new movie? Nope. These movies are awesome, dude. <laughs> Zach, thank you so much. These movies are so fucking good. I had so much fun re-watching these movies, thinking about these movies. Oh, my God. Can we just do The Matrix every month, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, uh, perfect. All right, Mr. Rob, I'm tired, so I will uh, talk to you. You let me know what Mr. Ben has to say about uh, Spider-Man <laughs> nonsense. Three and a half hours this came in. <laughs> we did the Matrix movies! Jesus Christ, this is so cool! <laughs> <laughs>